Hello friends, how's it going? Matt here and you are listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. The show where I look at life through the lens of surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding and other related endeavours. Thank you for tuning into this episode and I hope you enjoy it. Speaking of snowboarding, I've actually been doing a bit of it rather than just writing about it, chatting about it, being on selection committees and all the other stuff that I do. I'm in the three valleys in the French Alps, my old stomping ground. I've been coming here, we worked out, me and my old pal Chris Moran, for pretty much 30 years now. Uh, I'm staying at Chris's amazing place in Villemartin, just across the valley from Courcheval, Latagne and Maribel. And I've got to say, it's been a truly wondrous week, reconnecting with old friends, exploring the three valleys. We're up to Lehman Weir, Courcheval, Maribel. Been doing a lot of razzing around, trying to get the legs back. Um, and that's why I'm actually having a day off today and doing a bit of work because my legs are forked. Sorry about that, everyone. Um, turns out if you haven't been riding for a while, yeah, you get knackered. But yeah, it's been brilliant. A privilege, in fact, especially in light of the conversation you're about to listen to with Matt Olson, one of the people behind Gaza Surf Club. Matt is founding director of Explore Core, a 501c3 non-profit. I know quite a lot about these, um, thanks to the announcement, the, the documentary that I'm working on at the minute. A 501c3 nonprofit implementing unique projects in outdoor education, recreation, and the arts, which founded the Gaza Surf Club back in 2008. Now, you might well have seen the short about the Gaza Surf Club, which documented the lives of some of these surfers, um, which was released back in 2016. Although he describes himself as just some dude from Washington in a recent Inertia interview, Matt Olson's roots in this region go back to his childhood when his dad, a member of the US Diplomatic Corps or Foreign Service, I believe it might be known as, was posted to Israel. Um, And Gaza, as we learn in this conversation, was actually his dad's area of interest, beat, if you like. And Matt has been intimately involved in the Israeli and Gazan surf communities ever since with friends on both sides of that um, metaphorical and literal line. And as a result, he has a very nuanced understanding of the relationship between these communities. He's also involved in this region through his work in development, diplomacy and cross-cultural communication, as it says on the Explore Court website. And is a track to negotiator, something else he explains in detail during our conversation. All of which means he is pretty well placed for a chat about what is going on in this part of the world right now. And what follows is a very broad conversation about that entire topic. The situation in Gaza and Israel right now, the Gaza Surf Club, the roots of the current conflict, which I thought was fascinating and important. And the history of the Gazan and Israeli surf communities and Matt's own role in this ongoing story. Now, I'll explain a little bit about why I decided to conduct this interview in Housekeeping Corner at the end. But for now, I just want to say um, I went into this with an open mind and I learned a lot. So my thanks to Matt for taking the time to participate in this one and for answering my at times very basic questions with such patience, eloquence and insight. I'll be back at the end with Housekeeping Corner. But in the meantime, here is me and Matt Olson of Gaza Surf Club. Enjoy. All right. Um, Putting my stuff away here. Got different headphones and 
Yeah, so you're in you're in DC. Did you say? Yeah, I mean, I live just outside Washington DC in the suburbs. Is that where you're from? Uh, no, I'm originally from Maine, um, which is up in the northeast of the U.S. Uh, New England. Yeah, and, Mainer. Uh, is that what they call it? A Mainer. A Mainer. Yeah, a Mainer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my father was a uh, he was a commercial fisherman when he was younger, but he was the first to go to college in his family, and then he became a diplomat. Right. Um, so we, I grew up overseas. I left the U.S. when I was five, and right, I spent my whole life overseas. And is not is Nantucket, Maine? No, that's Massachusetts. Is it okay? I was a Moby yeah, just... Dick freak when I was a kid. So, yeah. um, I, uh, well, you know, I was just very, very into that book. So I was yeah. always trying to work out like that geography. So that's Massachusetts, yeah. Nantucket, yeah. and Maine's yeah. further north, basically. Further north, so. yeah. You, uh, Maine, Maine was originally part of Massachusetts when it was first in the colonial days, right? And then for the first maybe, uh, let's see, eight, uh, fifty years of U.S. history, it was part of Massachusetts. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. right. So yeah, and you said your dad was a diplomat. So you, yeah. by the sounds of it, grew up all over. Yeah, we left the U.S. when I was five, um, and I came back here for one two-year stint in elementary school. But other than that, we were abroad my whole life. Right. And so, what did he do, your old man? Um, well, when you're a diplomat, you kind of get a different portfolio each time you go to a new post. Okay. So he was technically an economic officer, so handling economic affairs. But the reality is that you're a generalist in the, it's called the foreign service. So yeah. Expected to do every job. So, um, I don't, I, in, when we lived in Jamaica, that was our first assignment. I think he did a lot of stuff with, um, with the uh, media piracy and, uh, international, uh, um, what'd you call it? Like copyright law, things like that. Okay. Um, did whaling when we lived in Norway. He was worked on the whaling issue a lot. He in Israel, oh, right. in Israel, his portfolio was the Gaza Strip. Right. Okay. Hence your uh, hence your initial interest, and in, I take it. Yeah. So so you were basically like yeah you were a kid just on the road like how was that then <clears throat> was that was that a kind of sounds kind of hectic was it fun Yeah, you know because it was it was kind of all I knew so I. I didn't have a problem with it really, you know, and I didn't, I didn't, I just kind of saw it as life, you know, I didn't see it one way or the other, yeah. but I, but I love it to this day. I mean, that's, it's really where I thrive. You know, you can just kind of plot me down in a new place where I don't know the language. I don't know anything about it. And I'll just wander off and I'll have a blast. You know, it's, I still, that's the, still the environment that I'm the most comfortable in. Yeah. I guess is, uh, I guess if you grow up <clears throat> traveling, being exposed to new cultures and very different cultures from from you know the states then yeah. uh, it's gonna it's gonna promote i guess a certain open-mindedness and a certain um, willingness to engage with the world right was that your experience yeah i mean you land in a country and you know my parents were very uh very free and liberal with us and you know go open the front door and okay go out there go meet yeah. some kids go find some kids to play with you know yeah so you really you really learn to be open to different forms of communication different expectations of behavior you know, culture, all that kind of stuff. So I mean, it led me into a, a bachelor's degree in college in cultural anthropology, which is, I didn't even know knew existed really. And I discovered that and I thought, oh, this is what if this is, this gives definition to my entire life experience. Ah, uh, right. You know, explaining how, how country, how cultures are developed and how they evolve and how they interact with other cultures and things. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to take my jumper off. I'm in my little shed where i record these i've got oh, the nice. heater on for an hour because obviously it's still pretty cold and i'm fucking yeah. boiling two seconds <laughs> sure um what i was going to say though is like 
before we get into the cultural anthropology thing so i'm reading quite an interesting book at the minute that you might have heard of called um the black wave have you heard of that yeah i haven't read read it it? no by the lebanese journalist whose name i can't remember so i'm going to look up quickly um really interesting fact, like kim gattis yeah uh extremely readable um for, for a history of uh you know the middle east iran saudi the roots of of the current situation but the reason i bring it up is because so i when i was a kid my dad got a job in kuwait and we lived in kuwait for um three years i think Mm. and it's quite interesting now reading this book and realizing like the role of that country in all this stuff going on when i actually lived there as a child right, <laughs> i always yeah. say i had no idea given that I, you know lived in a, an expat community and you know expat life tends to be fairly privileged isn't it especially if you work for an oil company like my dad did yeah sure well, i don't think he worked for an oil company i think he worked for an engineering firm actually um but but yeah in, and and i i certainly found that um being exposed to to that as a child was yeah really formative like I think, you know, I think traveling so much as a kid certainly um, s- set me on a kind of path where that was something I wanted to do more when I when I got older. Really, sounds like so. W- when you said that the cultural anthropology kind of explained things for you, then so h- in what way? Just it kind of made you understand what you'd intuitively yeah, known I- in more a formal way. Yeah, I think in a more formal way, it didn't really explain it to me because I already knew it, but it kind of gave a definition to it that was explainable to others, I guess. Right. Um, you know, like you said, it'd be exactly the same in Kuwait. If you're a kid showing up there, you're just going to see that people think differently Yeah. and people behave differently. And in their minds, it makes complete sense. And yeah. so you have to understand that, you know, your way of thinking and your way of knowing is not necessarily universal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, when, I mean, my, my background is, uh, kind of action sports as you might have gathered and one of the things that i like i I was lucky enough to travel a lot in the middle east about 20 years ago basically to go snowboarding so i went snowboarding in iran went to lebanon went snowboarding to write to write stories like for magazines that i wrote for at the time and i remember i went to lebanon and we ended up in the mountains we ended up in this town called bishare which i think is where i probably pronounced that wrong it's where i think it's where khalil Gibran is that how you say it the prophet yeah. that guy Gibran. I think it, yeah. Gibran, Gibran right I think yeah. that's where yeah. he's from anyway so we ended up oh, in nice. that in that town really amazing experience like we were there snowboarding and the, like basically the whole town just came out and adopted us it was a really lovely thing actually because they were yeah, just cool. a bit like you know like who the fuck are you lot like and they yeah. and they and they and they showed us like you know incredible hospitality as you get everywhere you go in the Middle East as you'll know yeah. much better than me sure. um and I came away from that trip and I came away from all those um, experiences, like the Iran trip, like we went to Russia, went to Uzbekistan. And I, re- I really came away from it thinking like, because it was a time of like the Iraq war, it was a time of all that like axis of power bullshit. Mm. Um, and I remember coming away from it thinking like, people are just the fucking same. Like wherever you go in the world, I mean, I know it's like a real glib comment, yeah. um, but it is true. I think like people do not, you know, you can't, judge people i don't believe anyway by the geopolitical position of their country 
in, no, of in, course not. Yeah, especially in well, countries well, where there's no, especially parts of the world where there's no democracies, right? But people but do, though, don't they? But people like, like in, in, and in the, like, because of how we tend to get our impressions of these things from news, different news sources back then, yeah. more more mainstream news sources these days, social media included. It's quite hard not to not to fall into that. I think, um, yeah, and I guess I guess like the, that 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 for me has always been. The, like the importance of travel really like remembering yeah. remembering that fairly fundamental facts like obviously people have different beliefs and people behave differently like you say and you might not agree with that and and there are obviously certainly cultural issues that you might take exception to but generally people are, are kind of they're kind of all on the same page really yeah yeah i would agree I would agree. Yeah. I mean, have, you know, have, you found, have you found that with your travels? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it depends a lot on, you know, where on the spectrum you're talking about in some places, it's going to be an economic spectrum that you're talking about and some, it's going to be a political spectrum that you're talking about. But yeah, for the, in, for, in the general sense, you can sit down with just about anyone Yeah, and have a good time, you know? Um, yeah. As a kid, you kind of take it for granted. I feel like, you know, I can go anywhere, do anything, sit down with all these people. There's, a, there's, of course, an element of white privilege in that. You know, I can show up anywhere and be welcome. Whereas if I was, you know, African-American, I couldn't just plop myself down in the middle of a, of a, you know, a village somewhere and be like, let's hang out, you know? Yeah. Hey, we're snowboarding in Lebanon. Isn't like, yeah, yeah. Right? Everyone's, yeah. everyone's so nice to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As an adult, I do try to pay a little bit more attention to um, what, you know, what, in terms of research, look, checking out ahead of time, like, okay, what is the culture? What does it value? How is that going to affect my interaction with people? Yeah. And how should I then interpret my, pers- how should my perspective then be developed based on um, my experience, but also my understanding of how my presence there is changing, is changing that experience. Yeah, sure. Right. Are these people going to behave like this if I wasn't here? Are these people going to behave like this if I was a different color, if I was a different gender, if I was, uh, um, you know, if I looked different, if I acted different, you know, and in some places the answer is a clear yes. A lot of places would be a clear yes. They would act differently. And then other places it's a, it's a no, it might not matter. You know, some place race doesn't matter, but gender matters. Some places gender doesn't matter, but race matters. Yeah. Um, I was, I've always been amazed in my time in Gaza that I don't change the way I dress, you know, like I'm a surfer and a skater and a snowboarder and I dress accordingly as I get older, you know, it gets a little harder when you get into the forties. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I stroll down the street with my shaved head and my white skin looking like an Israeli soldier pretty much. Right. And no yeah. one even, no one even looks twice at me. They just assume, yeah. oh, he's some, he's someone's cousin from the U S or from Canada, you know, right. no one pays any attention to you. Even yeah. though you look, even though you look different, you're dressed different, right? No, nope. well, I, I, and, no and, and ex- it's exactly the, the experience that I've always had as well. Like people yeah. are just, they tend, I mean, people are just curious more than anything, aren't they? Yeah, you know, yeah, sure. Especially in those parts of the world where perhaps it's a bit more incongruous to meet somebody dressed in the way that you described. Yeah. Um, but before we get into your experience with Gaza, so what? So did you? Because you tell me what you do now then so you're you 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 kind of followed your dad's path in a way right yeah i I got into after i went to graduate school as well and studied international negotiation and conflict resolution um and i ended up going right back to israel um and doing track two diplomacy which is basically uh that you're reaching out and doing you're doing the initial phases of international diplomacy that governments are not allowed to do yet because of internal restrictions or something like that so for example um, the U.S. government want, needs to make a deal on hostages with Iran, right? There's Americans held in Iran. So the U.S. government cannot send 
U.S. government personnel to negotiate with Iran because it's either politically untenable or it's against the law. There are laws, you know, in Congress here that say you cannot talk to this person or this person. So you bring in track two, track two people, diplomacy people. They're not technically diplomats, but and they go in and they do the negotiation up to the point where it gets acknowledged and accepted by the your government that's hired you, and then you hand it off. Okay, so it's a so, proxy. Yes, it's a proxy system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's... And some some track two diplomacy is done with the blessing of the government that you're doing it for. Some of it is, but in between those periods, when you get what you it's not really a contract, but you know, when you get permission to do that, you're still doing diplomacy. You're just doing it to try to push what you think would be a, the proper initiatives for say a peace agreement or something. So, and you're trying to sell that to the government. Right. So where do you take your lead from in that, in that, in that, let's just use that example that you've, that you just gave, like, let's, you know, you're in Iran negotiating for, for, or like you're, you're negotiating on behalf of hostages in Iran. Like what, what, What's if if there's almost like this disavowal, if that's not too strong a word, from yeah. from the authorities? Yeah, where no, are you? Right. Where where are you taking your your lead from? Like in terms of how to manage those negotiations? Well, you're in in terms of uh, well management, you have to handle yourself. But in terms of you know your your guidelines and your standards and protocols for what you can be negotiating on, what is yeah, on the table, what is not. Yeah, you're getting it from the parties themselves. I mean, you're 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 having contact with either side. Yeah, you're essentially mediating there, right? So some dif- some of it is more mediation, some of it is more negotiation, some of it is just you're out there trying to make it happen. You're kind of hustling yeah. for it. Um, but yeah, you're doing it based on what you understand each side would be willing to do, and you do that based on relationships that you have with governments, right? Government okay. officials they they often informal relationships with government people. You know, sit down and have lunch. This is what we're working on. Yeah, you know where where am I? Where are the ends of the spectrum that I'm? I can negotiate on how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to not go? And that of course changes as you get further along, right? Yeah. The beginning of no negotiation is we will not negotiate. Yeah. And, and the end of negotiation is we have negotiated and we were going to do it all along. Like, yeah. Well, negotiation okay. was always the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we exactly. should come back to that because obviously that's a key question in this wider issue that's going on at the minute. But yeah, um, we hear a lot about just on the, on the word proxy, you know, we hear a lot about, um, I guess my question is like how like is that does that tend to be at this moment how much communication between these states is carried out not even not not just on the hostage level like on this proxy level because if you look at the history of the the Middle East it it does seem to be that like you have these powers whether it's Saudi Iran America Britain France who are at one remove but are nevertheless key players and sure. a lot of a lot of this is going on by proxy like you know whether it's by yeah. using different groups i mean obviously the this the, the whole thing with the houthis right now everyone's going like well that's iran you know like and again like this book black wave is 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 pretty convincing on like the way that iran and saudi have basically use these proxy movements to 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 further their own geopolitical aims as it were so right. is that it is that a fair picture of, of of the current state of things i think it is for negotiation um and the, the negotiation that takes place for example in the middle of active conflict like what we have now between israel and gaza yeah um the government in qatar is taking the lead on that right and doing the mediation qatar was also involved with the negotiation with the taliban with the united states so they're trying to play a role with um, the more extremist side of the of the 
resistance groups or Islamic militancy or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, so for, for active negotiations where there's negotiation that needs to happen now, they tend to use mediators. Egypt has also been a mediator in the past. You know, everyone has a little bit of a role to play whenever they think it'll benefit them. Right. Yeah. Um, for political, but for political kind of day-to-day political movement for when there's not an active crisis going on and you're just trying to push forward ideas for conflict resolution, um, that a lot of that is done domestically. It's done by groups in each country. So yeah. in Israel, for example, there are groups on the left and on the right that are trying to influence government decisions and put forward policies that they think would be good for the government. Same thing in the United States. You're essentially a lobbying group, but you're like yeah. lobbying for peace or you're lobbying for you know, conflict resolution. Yeah. Um, so those those international players play a much bigger role when the conflict is hot than they do when the conflict is cold. Okay, I understand. That makes yeah. sense. So let's talk about your relationship with Israel and Gaza. So um, you, I think when we chatted on the phone the other day, you were saying like the first time you went to Gaza, if I'm correct, was when you were 12, maybe when you were living in Israel. Yeah, I think I was. Were... Yeah, I was. About, I think I was 14. And you and you, and you were living in Israel at the time. Yeah. So my, I was. I moved to Israel when I was 13. We'd been living in the Marshall Islands, which is you know an atoll. Yeah. nation in the middle of the Pacific. And we went home. My dad was working on a variety of issues there. They were recently independent. So he was working on some of that. And we were in Hawaii on vacation. I just learned to surf um, in Waikiki. Nice. And while we weren't surfing, we were, we were in the hotel room watching the TV because the first Gulf War was going on. And there so should be like 91. Yeah. 90. Say? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah. It would have, it would have been, yeah. 91, I guess. Spring of 91, something like that. Maybe 90. I don't remember exactly when the Gulf War started, but um, yeah, I mean, within a year of moving to Israel, which I did in the fall of 91. Okay. Um, and uh, we're sitting there watching Scuds land in Tel Aviv on CNN or whatever it was. And my dad is on the, he's up at the head of the bed behind us in a hotel room on the phone for just for hours and hours. I don't know. What, I don't know. He's on, he, he's, it's work. We don't know what's going on. We're not paying any attention, but he's, what he's doing is he's on the phone with Washington trying to figure out what his next assignment will be. Right. And at one point he puts the phone down, like just up against himself. And he, he leans over to us and goes, Hey guys, uh, how'd you like to go to Tel Aviv next? And we said, dad, are you, are you watching the television? Are you paying any, <laughs> are you paying any attention to what's going on in the world? Or are you just on the phone this whole time? Yeah. And sure enough, you know, how, I don't remember how many months later we were, we flew into Tel Aviv, you know, right. dusty, August in Tel Aviv, dusty and you know, everything's dirty and sandy and dusty. Um, but his portfolio was the Gaza Strip. So he, back then, the, the the consulate in Jerusalem has always been in charge of Palestinian relations. Okay. And the and the embassy in Tel Aviv was in charge of, of relations with the government of Israel. But at the time, because Gaza was physically closer to Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv had a team that handled Gaza. And my dad was on that team. Okay. So it was, uh, I think it was only two of them at the time. So we lived in, we lived north of Tel Aviv in Herzliya, which is a still like beach surfer town where all the diplomats live. And then he would drive to Tel Aviv every day, get an embassy car and drive to Gaza. Okay. So when you said like his, he was handling Gaza on behalf of the consulate, what does that actually mean? Mostly doing reporting. Um, You know, he wasn't like a high level manager or anything. You know, he was one of the, you know, boots on the ground. So doing economic reporting and he had a partner that did political reporting and uh, they were fortunate enough that while they, while they were there was when the Oslo process kind of really started to ramp up um, the also negotiations between the PLO and the Israelis. Um, and this was started as track. This was a track two initiative in the beginning. There were PLO representatives and track two uh, people um, 
like Yair Hirschfeld and Ron Pundek, I, I went to work for them later. Um, and the US government kind of got wind of it and they wanted to know, is this real? Like, is this actually something that might happen? And my dad was one of the guys who was able to confirm with the Palestinians, like, no, no, we're taking, we're taking this seriously. This is real negotiations as far as we're concerned, which allowed the Israelis to then send official delegates and allowed the U.S. to get involved. And so he was lucky to be there during Oslo because he was kind of the U.S. guy on the ground in Gaza during the Oslo process. So can we just, for, for my listeners' benefit, there'll, there'll definitely be people that, that won't know about this. So yeah. if I could just try and make sure I understand it properly. So my understanding is that... Um, essentially the Palestinians and the Israelis, let's just put it politely, haven't got on for a while. Yeah, <laughs> and, sure. And um, so that, I mean, I'm not going to go back to the forties, but let's just, no. let's just say that post-war there's, there's been a conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and in the eighties, obviously that um, seemed to be very centered around like Lebanon was involved in that. And there was, there was yeah. like a, there was like a civil war. Right. And there was, yeah, so very, very brief th- thumbnail sketch there. Um, the PLO seemed to be the main players on the Palestinian side with Arafat, right? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, but 40, 48 is really, really important. It's way more important than anyone in the in the West, really, I'd say the West generally, but in the West it really gets, um, well, we can get to that later. But yeah, essentially to get to the Oslo process. Well, no, please do. But- if you feel like it's like, you know, we, we, we're going to have to, we, we should discuss this anyway. So yeah. By all means, talk about 48. So this was, is this like the foundation of Israel? Yeah, the foundation of Israel. No, we, we talk about this a little bit when we talk about like misunderstandings and, and national narratives and stuff. But in terms of the Oslo process, yeah. the, uh, by the 80s, the PLO was the main representative for the Palestinian population. They weren't elected or anything. They were just kind of the most successful resistance group. They were yeah. led by Yasser Arafat. And pr- in the 70s and 80s, the US really started to ramp up its support for Israel on a large scale, uh, especially in terms of broad political support within the United States government. And they did things like they passed laws saying that the U.S. could not talk to Palestinians, Palestinian representatives. They made a deal with the Israelis saying, we will not have independent channels of communication with the Palestinians unless we notify you ahead of time. Okay. Um, but that started to break down in the 80s, and that led to the Oslo process, where um, it was the first actual modern peace negotiations between the two sides yeah and and, and, yeah. and and this is the, is it also sometimes called the oslo accords is that what has the oslo accord is the final agreement okay is the agreement. So, yeah the, the process the oslo, the oslo process starts in the late 80s yeah um, which okay. kind of track two basis yeah and then kind of gets formalized in the early 90s and then t- leads to the peace agreement okay like w- what basically um meant that the oslo negotiations didn't lead to peace. Let me ask it that way. Uh, the, the, the number one thing was the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister who signed the agreement. I mean, that was, it's, it's something that, um, you know, Israelis look at it as this terrible moment, but they really kind of focusing more on the fact that this leader uh, who was, you know, one of the, one of the founders of Israel, this is that generation yeah. um, was so killed was pretty- by an Israeli. Was he progressive then, presumably? No, he, he, was... he wasn't. He wasn't. No, he. But he, he came to the understanding that an agreement had to be made, and he, you know, and they made this agreement. Um, in Israel, you have this situation where you have governments, a lot of times elected by a plurality, right? Not by a majority, but barely getting a major a, a majority of the party's vote. So not even over over fifty percent, but a plurality, right? 
um, they come to power and prime ministers come to power and, and prime ministers can keep coming back as many times as they want. So you have this problem where Israel is constantly getting prime ministers that are not willing to make any political moves that might sacrifice their ability to become prime minister in the future. Which is so, an accusation that's obviously leveled at Netanyahu today with his reluctance for to 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 go near a ceasefire, right? Or or like to yeah, well, it, it's 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 something that works for almost all prime ministers. You know, Yitzhak Rabin was prime minister in the seventies in Israel. He came back yeah. in the nineties and was prime minister again, and he made the the deal, right? He he agreed to the Oslo Accords, and part of that is he knew it was his last hurrah, and he kind of had an. an this is you know based on what people have told me. He had an understanding that, you know, something has to be done. Ariel Sharon is the same way. Ariel Sharon was this incredible hawk in Israel. But yeah. by the time he came to be prime minister in 2000, he he knew this was his last go. Right. And people who I know who knew him really do think that he made a that that, that he wasn't trying to, like, be sneaky by by uh, disengaging from Gaza, like divide and conquer. He really did think that we need to give up Gaza and that's it. Okay. Right. right. His intentions were good. Do I, do I buy that? This is what I've been told by people. Sure. Um, I think there's still evidence to suggest either way that this was a divide and conquer plan, or this was actually being done with an understanding that Israel is at risk when occupation continues. So, right. Okay. Okay. So just a quick question then on, on Rabin's assassination. Um, So, because, so the guy that assassinated him was presumably extremely far right, if you like. Yeah, yeah, he was a, a far right settler. Yeah. yeah. So, but am I correct in thinking that some of the current members of the Israeli government originally supported the person that assassinated Rabin? Yeah, I think Ben Gavir was, um, you know, part of the part of this kind of extremist groups. I mean, there's a there's a decent population of these extremists in Israel. Um, so, so that, so that, but that, like the the Overton window, if you like, in Israel has has shifted to the point where now you've got people that support that extremist position that are now literally in government. Is that yeah, that are literally in government. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay. I mean, it's 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 extremely complicated, and there's there's a lot to a lot to learn, a lot to understand. But essentially, then, so um, the Oslo, the, the assassination of Rabin meant that 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 peace process and you've you've obviously alluded to the fact there's effectively like a couple of theories whether it was a sincere process or whether it was disingenuous with the the aim of like furthering israel's aims that didn't work that 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 failed is that would you say yeah and and it's important to note that the prime minister that came after rabin was netanyahu i was gonna say because he's been around for years hasn't he like when i was a kid he was like prime minister of israel (laughs) now 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 it should also be noted that rabin was not like just some angel once the oslo accords were signed there was going to be a time frame for when a palestinian state were created and the rabin government ramped up settlement building in the west bank get everything as much stuff established as you can before the line the final line, line is drawn right okay so it's not so, like, you know, they're just doing out the goodness of his heart, but they are trying yeah. to establish a firm border. But then once he was gone, settlement, the settlements kind of really took off. When I was in, when I graduated from high school in Israel in 95, I think there were 40,000 Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And now there's something like 850,000. So how, how, how would you describe what you've just referred to as the settler movement? Like, what is that? Again, that's a phrase we hear a lot. Like what well, I mean, that? it's basically it's it's primarily based on religious Zionism, the idea that Israel that that uh, Jewish Israelis should settle all the land up to the Jordan River. Um, it's based on the understanding that Judea and Samaria, which is the north and the south of the West Bank, the occupied West Bank, constitute biblical land of historic Israel, and so it should be settled. 
Um, and that's it. You know, who, I'm, I'm, I'm prior whoever's to there should be pushed out. And prior to 48, that was called Palestine. Is that correct? Yeah, including all of Israel was called Palestine. Yeah, all yeah. of Israel plus the West Bank. What we call yeah. the West Bank nowadays was, yeah, the British mandate Palestine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll come back to that. So your dad was involved in that and you're living in Tel Aviv and you're starting to visit Gaza, basically, and presumably you're yeah. surfing, you're, you know, so how, so is this where your, um, you know, interest in this region and this area, these communities really began to develop? Yeah, I, I immediately made Israeli friends and I made Palestinian friends that I still have to this day. Um, my dad came back from one of his very first trips and said, man, you should see the beaches down there. We should go surf there. You know, he, he had been a surfer in his youth. Um, one of the first surfers in the state of Maine and wow, <laughs> that that sounds, before the days of wetsuits. That sounds cold. <laughs> yeah. It's unbelievably <laughs> cold. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, I immediately started having friends on both sides of the border and surfing and skating and everything. And my, uh, my, my journey took me into you know, diplomacy or track to diplomacy, if you will. But I always wanted to do some action sports related stuff in Gaza. And I have good connections in Israel with professional skaters and surfers. And so I kind of combined the two there at some point I was, I was working on, um, I was working in Israel on a track two project on the disengagement from Gaza. And I said, uh, well, I, I kind of got burned out on it. And I said, well, I'd like to go back and do a action sports project. And so I, started explore core which is the parent company of the gaza surf club so it's the parent nonprofit. so it combines it's, it's like doing action sports in a place where you need international negotiation skills in order to make it work so so that's what explore that was the genesis of explore core so so yeah. gaza surf club was the first manifestation if you like of the of, of the wider mission of explore core yeah that's like the pilot project okay and Explore Core is obviously still extant. It's still running. And you've got how many projects have you got around the world now? Uh, well, we only got a few. It's an all volunteer thing. I just do it for fun on the side. Okay. Um, the, the surf club was supposed to last like four or five years. And then it was going to be handed off and become a Palestinian like formal surfing association. I still, we still, <laughs> we still have it because the Hamas government in Gaza would never let the surfers register any kind of gang, uh, any kind of club or anything. They're very strict about, you know, like, uh, well, every government there, it doesn't matter if it's Hamas or not, but they're strict about like associations and sports and they take it way too seriously in a way, right? They don't let independent clubs form. But the Hamas government was just screwing us over year after year after year. They won't let the surface register because it's part of their corruption scheme for how they make money is through like these sporting associations. So right. unless, unless they can have, they decide who's going to be the head of your sporting association, that individual gets all of the equipment all of the donations, all of the funding, and decides when the surfers can come and pick up equipment to borrow for an hour or two. And that's how it works with all kinds of different sporting clubs there. Um, so, you know, we tried, we tried for years and years to have a, to transfer everything over to the surfers themselves, but it, it, it couldn't happen. So hopefully there'll be a new government here in the next couple of months and we'll be able to. In, in Gaza. In, in Gaza. Gaza in Gaza. Yeah. 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 So before we get into those specifics, then, so so the goal originally was to essentially like give like the local community in Gaza like a, an outlet for surfing, like to try and get more people into surfing and skateboarding and, and this culture. Is that the original idea? Because it's quite yeah, a there, few of those projects now, aren't there? There's, yeah, there I'm are sure, now. Yeah, I'm sure when you've we started. Seen, there was sure, nothing. I'm, I'm sure you've seen like you know, there's one in South South Africa. There's like the Way Project yeah. in the UK. There's like quite a few in the states, aren't there? And it's that. It's it's that whole thing of like using these as literal and metaphorical vehicles, isn't it, to give local kids in 
yeah. quite disadvantaged areas like uh yeah like uh a, a way of experiencing what we take for granted over here right so is that the original idea yeah that was the original idea we started in, in i started in 2007 um, really got on the ground there in 2008. And there really weren't any projects like this in Gaza. And because Hamas had just taken over Gaza in 2007, there was actually no one in Gaza doing anything. The UN had pulled out all its projects. It had stopped all the projects. They restarted later once the situation on the ground became a little more stable. But when we, when I first went into Gaza to start the surf club project, there was nothing, there was no one there. There was, and there was no gas and there was no meat. And there was, you know, it was a full embargo because Hamas had just taken over. So um, it was just us. The, Oliver at at Skatistan in Kabul. Yeah, I know, I, I, I know yeah, Oliver. Oliver. Yeah, yeah, I know Oliver. Yeah. He he got his start about the same time that we did. Right? So okay. that was he he and I kind of had the first kind of big projects like this. He was lucky enough to be doing it in a place where you could fly people in, but in Gaza you couldn't get anyone in. I had the connections to get in because of my work there in politics and tragedy yeah. negotiations, so I knew people at the Ministry of Defense and I had the right connections, but I couldn't even get people to go in with me. So um also oliver had this there was this great i don't know if it was a new york times article or something that someone wrote about his his project before it was even a project i think they they saw him skating with some kids in a square in Kabul, and they said hey well who are you what do you want to do and they and they were good enough to write an article that where he got to explain what his vision was right yeah which is fantastic it's like that i don't i don't want to over over blow it but it's kind of like the golden touch in a way right like he was organized he knew what he wanted to do and there was someone who was willing to put that idea out there yeah. As opposed to writing a fluff story, which is what we get a lot of in Gaza, just kind of like filler pieces about Gaza, you know? Right. That's interesting. What do you mean by that? Uh, we get a lot of articles. I mean, there's, you know, probably a couple hundred articles that have been written about surfing in Gaza. And most of them are just, you know, I surf to feel free. Wow. Look at these kids, how unique. Right. But there's never any like depth to them or any focus on, well, what do you want to do with surfing? You know, like, where, where do you live? Where's your group? Where do you surf? Where do you hang out? It's just kind of like, I've met the surfer. I surf to feel free is the, is the line that's repeated over and over. But it's always these articles that, and this type of coverage that leaves you with a, a feeling of, oh, well, that's nice. Poor guys. That's it. There's never any way to engage in these, right? So there's never any way for people reading the article to engage with the project and say, oh, I'd like to be a part of that. I'd like to support that. I'd like to help out. I'd like, you know, is a that, lot of is, a lot of stuff is guilty of that. I, don't, I was going to say, is that symptomatic of 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 the surface level in which we tend to engage in topics like this in the West? It's it's symptomatic of two two things in the world that it's it's cynical to say so, but it's like you have to have an article about it once every six months in your paper. Like in the New York Times is very guilty of this because I notice all the time, and one of them is Gaza. Got to have an article about Gaza like every six months in your publication, and the other one is surfing. Because surfing is like cool and it's especially as it gets popular and rich people are doing it and stuff. You have to have an article in your newspaper about surfing like once every six months. So every <laughs> so every six months, there's an article about surfing and it, it treats surfing the way that people think of surfers as kind of like airheads, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, I, dude, bro, they're just out there just feeling free, you know, feeling free in the waves. It never gives it like the intellectual depth or the professional curiosity to look at it and say, okay, well, what's going on? What's the bigger picture? You know, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. This is something that it's something that happens across the action sports world. We're kind of stuck in like this, this, you know, like the, uh, 
uh, fast times at Ridgemont High idea of a surfer, right? Spicoli, to be uh, fair. I mean, what, on, what, 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 a, what a performance and what a character. Yeah, no, oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But that's right, still that's... how people think about action sports, you know? And, and do you, so do you... Surfing specifically. Yeah, but it, it, bringing it back to the case of what you're talking about with Gaza Surf Club. Yeah. Um, did that surprise you that people... Because, you, you know, with the skate example that you've just talked about... It's a good story. Like as a journalist, like Gaza yeah. Surf Club, Skate Stand, they're good stories. You know, like you yeah, say, sure. if you're if you if you're a journalist and you're like, what? There's a skate charity in Kabul. Like what? There's a surf club in Gaza. Like obviously you're going to yeah. get commissioned. Like especially oh, it's like a great in, story. Yeah. Especially in 2010. But did it surprise you, given what you were trying to achieve, like the fact that it was treated with such kind of, you know, in such a facile way? Yeah, it did surprise me. I because I was already aware of the fact that okay, look, in the New York Times, there's an article. This is at the time, right, two thousand eight. There's an article about surfing like every six months in the New York Times or yeah about Gaza. And I thought, okay, there's already enough. The, the subject itself, the topic, surfing and or Gaza, is already something that people want to write about because people are curious about it. So if we do something really interesting, we'll get good coverage. Yeah, because it's going to be really interesting. What I didn't appreciate is that the coverage would still be and so much of the coverage would still be at the level of what the original kind of filler or fluff pieces were like they didn't dive in the first article that we had done that 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 took it in any way seriously and talked about goals and accomplishments and who's involved in things was from um, the national in Abu Dhabi. That was the first paper that did anything really serious, but a decent article. Um. The BBC, one of the first articles that came out was a BBC piece. It was a BBC television piece, BBC Four or something. And uh, it's a journalist walking along the beach talking with a guy who's the head of the surf club and asking him all these questions and all this stuff. And the guy had nothing to do with the surf club. Right. <laughs> it was just right. a guy who was like, yeah, I'm the head of the surfers. And they just right. went with it. And they didn't, they didn't. We had a website by then. We had, a, you know, we had... All kind, everything you need as a journalist in order to find us and say, hey, what's going on? What's the project? What are you doing? Tell us about it. Yeah. No one reached out. Someone was just in Gaza. They found a guy who said, I'm in charge of the surfers. And they just went with it. And they released this like six minute story Yeah, <laughs> about the surfers in Gaza. I'm going to use the word again. Is that symptomatic of the way that we, because one of the things we talked about the other day is, is like you could, you could sort of extrapolate that metaphor for the way that people are dealing with the current conflict, right? Yeah. Like there's the, like there's the the, the uh, it's really you can tell you even like I'm struggling to know how to phrase it but like one of the one of the interactions that I personally had on social media not that it's at all fucking relevant what I think about this but I I kind of posted something which was saying no I didn't even post anything I basically posted a couple of books like you know like if you want to understand like what's going on a bit more in 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 the minute you could try reading these books. I think one of them was like the Silk Roads. Like one of them was um, Disor- like Disorder, that book you might know. Mm-hmm. And was basically saying like, this is really fucking complicated and it might behove you to like try and learn a bit more about it because it's, yeah. and and I kind of got slated for that. I can't, I got a message back saying like, no one cares that it's complicated. People just want to talk, like stop telling people to read books. Like people just want, yeah. and, I was, <laughs> and I was a bit like, wow, okay that I don't really know what to do with that. And whenever, whenever you use the words, it's complicated. You, I mean, I got, 
again the other day when I when I sort of dared to say to someone on Instagram, they were like, "Oh, so you support genocide?" <laughs> That's yeah, a bit right, like, yeah, straight to wow. Them, yeah. Okay, that escalated quickly. Yeah, um, but you, you get what I'm saying. Like, is that is that sort of redolent of how the conversation tends to happen? You, I think, think so. In the context of our of the project of the Surf Club, I think that is one of the main contributing factors to why like media coverage, for example, is so simplified because they just don't want to open that can of worms to be like, who's, where's the, what's the background of this? Cause then you have to start talking about actually the border is closed. So the can import, import equipment, wait, but you import equipment. So how did you do it? Actually, because we have contacts on the Israeli side that are sympathetic to the surf club and are helping to get us equipment through, right? It opens up this whole can of worms and they just want to tell a simple story. You know, surfing is there. Isn't that so nice? What a lovely thing. They find freedom in the sea end of story and people read it and they're like okay wow that was that was lovely lovely story no way to engage so you were you you mentioned hamas earlier obviously uh what (laughs) if you're happy to i think again what might be useful if you could perhaps so we've we've talked in broad strokes 48 we've talked about that we've talked about the settler movement we've talked about the fact that essentially at this point palestinians are getting shifted into these small areas right like the west bank is one if i'm correct and then gaza yeah, is the west bank and gaza yeah um and is that kind of still the case now then basically like the palestinian populations are in those two broadly in those two areas in this in this part of the world uh well yeah they're also in israel i mean 25 of the israeli population are, are palestinians um they call themselves palestinian citizens of israel that's kind of the accepted way um they used to just be called israeli arabs that's what Israelis call them. That's what Jewish Israelis call them. That's what they call themselves. So Palestinian citizens of Israel, they, they say that because they don't want to just say that they're Israeli. They want to differentiate themselves for political reasons. Um, and second, they want to make sure that they're understood that they are the same people that were in the West Bank and Gaza. So the West Bank and Gaza used to be controlled by Jordan and Egypt, respectively. Right. Um, and, you know, you, you talk about reading books, but I mean... <laughs> people on you're talking about you're telling people that are not in is in that are not palestinian and are not israeli you're telling these people to read books you could also tell the people that are there to read books because the history is so unknown on both sides um both sides have an historical narrative of what has happened to them and which is completely off base and does not acknowledge the existence of the other side and so you're dealing with with people who are in conflict who know really absolutely nothing about the other side um, and it goes for both sides. Um, I do, I do lay a little, lay a little bit more of that at the Israelis' feet because they are a democracy. They have Western standards of, standards of education. The balls, you know, we we hold them to a little bit higher standard, which I think is not unfair, right? And they want they want to be held at that higher standard. Israelis consider themselves to be, you know, European and international and everything. Um, I don't remember what, what what your question was specifically. Well, my but, my, my, my but, question was was we, we were talking about like um, where you you were explaining that Palestinians West Bank Gaza Strip, oh, yeah. there's, sure. there's the Palestinian population in Israel, um, yeah. and you were and, and I, I guess you, you were getting where I was trying to get you to anyway. I was I was trying yeah. to understand like how those areas are governed. Um, we'll come back to that point that you make because yeah. that's such an interesting point, and I do want to come back to that. But yeah. so because you because you started talking about Hamas and you started talking about because one of the narratives that you obviously hear um around around this current conflict is like basically Gaza is controlled by Hamas and um 
yeah, like everything that's happened is at the fault of Gaza because they're is at the fault of Hamas because they're you know blah 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 these things that we hear right. So I just want yeah. to understand and and um, I'd, I'd like you to try and contextualize for for people listening, like who Hamas are, what they actually like you know like what their control over the over the area, yeah, and and how that works because you've already explained like in in the context of Gaza Surf Club like how you came up against that. And how that's sure. obviously impacting in, in 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 a real way the people that live there. You know, for example, they can't they can't have something as straightforward as a surf club because yeah. it's a way of of the of Hamas like extracting money from locals. Let's just say. So yeah, yeah I just was yeah. interested if you could give a little bit more context about that. Yeah, well, the we especially we in the West we tend to think of the Israeli Palestinian conflict as kind of 1967. 1967 is when Israel. Um, started the Six-Day War, it launched a war against Egypt and Jordan. And it took the West Bank, which was part of Jordan, and it took the Gaza Strip, which was part of Egypt, and it occupied it. And at the time, there were a lot of people on the political left in Israel who said, this is a bad idea. We can't occupy this. We already have problems with uh, d- with domestic terrorism within Israel's borders. We don't want this. Um, but the Israeli government kept onto it and occupied it. And they kind of used the argument that if we let it go, they'll attack us, right? We have to hold on to it. We have to hold on to it. Um, the Oslo agreements basically said the Palestinians would accept that if they were given the West Bank and Gaza, that that would be their country, that they could form a state there. Um, and Hamas has always rejected that. Hamas was formed in 1987. And basically as the PLO became a formal participant in the peace process, Hamas kind of took over the role um, of being the, the active resistance, like the fighters, right? We're still fighting for freedom. So could you could you make a parallel with the PLO a very, very a very rough broad imperfect parallel between something like Sinn Fein like in Ireland you know Sinn Fein like I mean that's a, that's a much broader journey because they're now like the party in power you know they're literally right. like the party that, but do you know what I mean they were like the political wing of the IRA well, but it's a, yeah no it's a very similar journey I mean the PLO uh, yeah. became part of a legitimate peace process yeah that's what I'm getting at yeah which in some people's eyes meant that they were collaborating with Israel and not fighting for the purest of goals, which would be the eradication of Jewish Israelis and the resettlement of the whole territory. So Hamas took advantage of that. I can imagine that didn't go down well with certain fa- factions in the Arab world. Let's put it that way. Yeah. No, no. I mean, there, there's always different factions supporting different parties based on their, uh, you know, what, but based, based on their national goals. Right. And it, it is really based on national goals. Very few of the Arab governments in the Middle East could care, could care at all about the Palestinians, but they use it to their, their advantage sure. for, for their domestic politics. Um, so, what the, happened- so, so the PLO starts to become more legitimate. I'm going to invert the commas um, yeah. and and basically is involved in peace talks through the the track yeah. two you said process yeah. that you talked about. Yeah, and and then Hamas fills that militant vacuum. Yeah, they kind of fill the militant vacuum. The PLO is under the Oslo Agreement establishes the Palestinian Authority, which is going to be the Palestinian government that controls the West Bank and Gaza. It actually really only controls about 60% of the West Bank and Gaza because the Israeli military is still in there and there's still settlers and settlements being built. Um, and around 2005 or six, the there's not a lot of process being made on implementation of Oslo and the Israelis and the Americans decide that it's Yasser Arafat. He's the problem. He's a problem. So what we need is we need to have elections in the Palestinian Authority to get rid of Arafat. And I was there at the time. <laughs> we were all saying... 
Uh, if you have elections, they will just reelect Arafat. It doesn't matter that you don't like him. Just because you don't like him doesn't mean he's not going to get elected. And the Americans were insisting, oh, we have to have elections. We've got to get Arafat out of here. So they have elections. And of course, Arafat is reelected. So what they basically do is they the Israelis confine him to his, like uh, the Palestinian White House, essentially, his little building in Ramallah. And they literally encircle it. And they he just lives there under siege and eventually dies there. Um once he's gone, the American government decides we need to re now that Arafat's gone, we need to have a new election and we need to recertify that the Palestinian Authority has the national public support. And um, I wasn't living in Israel during the election, but I was in the, the Palestinian election, but I was living there in the lead up towards it. And we were getting polling information coming in from very well respected pollsters and uh, Palestinian pollsters saying, um, you actually, there's a chance that Hamas might win this. Um, because the U.S. government decided that that they would. This is the U.S. government has a lot of pull in this, right? And they to long, they kind of pushed the Israelis into this. The Israelis weren't so gung ho about it, but they said, "Listen, the best way to delegitimize Hamas is for us to allow them excuse me to participate in national elections, and then when they lose, it, it'll help push them push them down." So we were getting this polling, and this is when I was uh, where, when where I was working. Trump? Yeah, right. So this is that, this is that, we've got this polling in and the polling, the question that was put out in this poll, this is the main poll that we were using. It said, uh, take these like 20 issues. They listed 20 issues within Palestinian society. And it's like corruption and uh, safety and public works and uh, national, uh, national, national state objectives. List them in the order that you think is the most important. And then beside each one, put which party you think is the best suited to address this problem, Hamas or Fatah. Fatah is the political party behind the Palestinian Liberation Organization and behind the Palestinian Authority at that point. Um, and numbers two through 10 were a random you know, list of all these different concerns. And for each one of those, it said that Fatah was the best political party to deal with this issue. But number one was corruption. And it said the best political party to deal with the issue of corruption was Hamas. And so we're looking at this and we're saying, uh, you, you guys need to slow down with this, this pushing for the elections because there's a chance that Hamas is going to win. And uh, the U.S. government was dead set. No, no, they're, of course they're not. They're going to lose. They're going to lose. My dad was working at the embassy in this time. And he, he, re, he is referred in an, an article that he wrote at some point about uh, being in the meeting where they were deciding what color drapes they were going to put behind the podium when Mahmoud Abbas, the successor to Yasser Arafat, announced the the win of his party. <laughs> they're so confident they're choosing the colors, right? So they had the election and Hamas won. How and free was that election? The free election, good, 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 fair and free elections. Okay. Um, took place in the West Bank and Gaza. In the media, you'll always see it. Oh, when Hamas was elected in Gaza, they weren't elected in Gaza; they were elected nationally. Okay. They got like, uh, you know, like uh, 53% of the vote or something, right? You know, small, a small majority, but enough of a majority. But uh, the U.S. basically led the way and said, no, we're not going to recognize your win. So, so we did the same thing in Algeria when the Islamic militants won in the early 90s. I mean, you know, the U.S. government has a history of doing this, unfortunately. But basically said, no, we're not going to let you win. So we're not going to let you uh, take power. So. What happened a year later was that during during the the next year, Hamas was primarily in in Gaza. That's their headquarters. That's where they come from. That's where all their people were. So for the next year, 
the U.S. funded security forces that were in Gaza just beat the hell out of the Hamas forces there, right? Just harassing them and beating them and just really brutalizing them. And it got to the point where Hamas fought back really hard in one place in Khan Yunus, which you'll hear about a lot in the news now because of the IDF is there. Khan Yunus is the, is the, 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 the origin town of Hamas. They started fighting back against the PLO, the, against the, the PA security forces and the PA security forces just collapsed. And I've had conversations with Hamas guys who fought on that. And they said, yeah, it was like, we didn't, we thought it was maybe like a trick. Like they all just ran away that they, they drove off to the North. So we literally gotten like car, whatever cars we had. And we just drove to the North of Gaza to Gaza city. And we met resistance there and they had like a two day battle and then Hamas won. And so Hamas controlled the Gaza strip. So that's how Hamas came into, came into power in, in Gaza. It's described as a coup, the Hamas coup in Gaza, but technically the coup was when the we wouldn't let the Hamas government take power. That's actually technically a coup. It's not a coup if the government that's elected actually takes power, right? Um, so what year was this? This was 2007 when Hamas took over. And what um, impact did that have? Two-part question. What impact did that have on um, the relation with Gaza, Israel, and by proxy the states? Firstly, right. So, 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 every, so the U.S. and Israel agreed to just shut down Gaza. Basically, we're going to put a siege on them. Uh, my joke at the time, which still was relevant, is that because it worked so well in Cuba and it worked so well in North Korea, right? This idea that oh, we'll just put a massive embargo on them and they'll Hamas will fall out of power. No, no, just strengthens them. It's never it hasn't worked. Where has it worked, right? And so they put this really super tight economic embargo on Gaza at the same time that we were that I was putting down the idea for the surf club said, okay, well now it's controlled by Hamas. I still want to do the surf club there. So let's make it happen. Right. In 2007, there was an article in the LA times about these two surfers. Um, and it was, uh, it was your kind of standard article. I surfed to feel free. You know, uh, it was about Muhammad Abu Jayab and Ahmed Abu Hasira, who are two surfers who shared a board. And um, I didn't see the article when it came out. I saw it like a couple of weeks later and I called my buddy Arthur, who's kind of like a, a big wig, a kingpin in the Israeli surf and skate scene. And I said, hey, Dad, did you read this article about these guys in Gaza? And he says, I'm in the car. I'm going to Gaza right now. I'm on the way there. And he was on the way with Doc Paskowitz, who's this famous American surfing ambassador, who was already in his late 80s by that point. And they were going to the Gaza crossing to hand over surfboards to the guys from Gaza. And they were going to meet there. And they named this project Surfing for Peace. And... Uh, and you can you read about surfing for peace online and everything, but surfing for peace kind of got the foot in the door and got started. And then I said, okay, well, I've been working on this surf club issue and I want to be part of surfing for peace. So I'm on my way. So basically I flew over there like two months later, I moved from LA back to Israel. I'd been in LA for like two years and I had moved there from Israel. And then I just hopped, I moved back and uh, started this project. So the surfing for peace is kind of where we got started. But when we started the project, the embargo had just started in Gaza and there was just nothing available. You couldn't get meat. You couldn't get uh, gasoline. You could get shampoo, but not conditioner because shampoo is technically a humanitarian good because it's necessary for, um, for sanitation, but conditioner is not. So no, no conditioner. This is what the Israelis were allowing in. So is this the beginning of, of, of the dynamic that we still see at play now, where basically the end result is that the Palestinians' quality of life is, is, is worse and the two sides are blaming each other. You know, like the, the, 
the, the Israelis are like, well, the embargo's Hamas' fault because because we're doing it because of Hamas. And I mean, it's obviously like quite a simplified pitch that I'm painting, but yeah. Um, and then, no, but that's that's the basic and then and then, and then and then and then Hamas are like, well, this is the fault of the Israelis' embargo. Like, but at the end of the yes. day, like the Palestinian people are still like basically their quality of life is 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 being further and further eroded. Is that well, is it, that kind of the start of like this dynamic that we still? I mean. That's basically the argument that's going on now around the conflicts, isn't it? Yeah, well, there, there, there's there's some truth to that, but that's that's part of the argument for Gaza. In Gaza, the first years of the embargo were really bad, um, and they really were just crushing Gaza. Things started to change after the Mavi Marmara incident. The Mamari Marvara, Mami Marvara was a Turkish ship that came from Turkey full of Palestinian activists and tried to breach through the naval blockade oh, and get to Gaza. About, I don't know about this, right? Yeah, it's this, this This was in uh, 2010, I believe. It might have been late 2009. I think it's 2010. And basically, a bunch of people on board, the Israeli naval commanders raided the ship. Um, uh, it was a huge international... I think a few people died. There was It was a big international incident. And after that, Israel was forced to change its policies on the embargo. So um, the embargo changed from this is the list of things that we will allow to this is the list of things we will not allow and everything else can go. Uh, Meanwhile, in the West bank, um, the policy of the, of numerous Israeli administrations has been that if we make the quality of life better for Palestinians in the West bank, the resistance against occupation will lessen. So we're going to get security by making their lives better. So in the last 10 years, they've seen a big uptick in the quality of life in the West bank. Um, and the Israelis started to implement the same thing in Gaza about five or six years ago. All of a sudden, you could get a lot more stuff, a lot more products. You could import cars. Um, life in Gaza has been much better for the last the last few years. And part of that is this Israeli policy that if we make their economic situation better, they'll have less. They'll they'll care less about the fact that we're an occupying force. And second, Hamas has been playing this game for the last not quite decade, but it's close to a decade where they've been talking about moderating and saying, we'd like to become part of the political process again. They've had, you know, every other year, there is a, an, a grand announcement that there's going to be a reunification government between Hamas that controls Gaza and the PA, which still controls the West Bank. And so they've been kind of playing this game over the years of we're, we're in the process of moderating. And if you just give us a little more flexibility and a little more freedom, eventually will become part of the legitimate political process and violence will go down. Um, and it's included all kinds of stuff. I mean, they, they, Hamas has been talking for years now about eliminating from their charter the part that says we want to destroy Israel. Um, all kinds of language. is Basically, Hamas has, like I mean, a lot of governments have this, but Hamas has a spokesperson for every every audience. They have spokesmen that are saying, oh, yes, we want peace and we're going to change our change our mandate so that we we don't hate Jews and we don't want to destroy Israel. And then you've got Hamas spokesman that's saying, we are a nation of martyrs. We want as many people to die as possible. Death to the Jew, right? You've got everything in between there. And they use these spokesmen for different things. But what it's done is it's given the impression to a lot of, a lot in the Western world, including the Israelis, that the Hamas position has been moderating over the last year. So the economic situation has been loosened. And life's been pretty good. I think for the last few years, you've been able to get surfboards into Gaza. No one has really taken the initiative to do it. We've been kind of trying to help these guys do it, but it's been a little bit of a 
motivation issue. But kayaks and things have been getting in. Life has been getting pretty good. And that's part of the reason why the Israeli government is so upset about what happened on October 7th. Yeah, sure. I was going to say that. So this is why there's such a sense of betrayal amongst the Israelis. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm not really going to ask you to speculate on the motives behind why Hamas did that, obviously. Um, but it was it. I mean, that sounds like an incredibly long game. That sounds like, you know, a 10, because, because like, it's like we've been oh, saying, yeah, no, they're like, in the long like, game. Yeah. Like, like, like we've been saying, like PLO, I use the example of Sinn Féin. You can see why people bought it because it is, a, it is a, it's a progress, like, um, no. ANC, you know, like, no. yeah, like it's a natural it, progression. It, it's a progression. Like these militant yeah. organizations yeah. do, do over years tend to, tend to, shift towards uh, an orthodoxy don't they like a political yeah. orthodoxy that that like especially when you've got the attendant improving conditions as you've just described where like sure. you know economically things are going better and like so you can completely understand why this has obviously come from come as such a seismic cultural societal yeah. act of act of violence like yeah where, i mean it, we We've been talking, we've talked about track two negotiations. And in the last few years, you've had, this is the first time that you ever had negotiations, direct negotiations between Israelis and Israeli government representatives or track two representatives of the Israeli government and Hamas officials. So uh, so that place. was, that was going on like very recently then. Yeah, very so, recently. Yeah. Okay. That, sh- that shows you how, how much the, 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 the notion that Hamas is moderating itself was accepted within the Israeli government that they said, okay, we're actually going to talk to you now. We're not yeah, going to yeah, use yeah. Egypt and we're not going to use Qatar. We're actually going to, they're still, you know, there were secret negotiations, but they're still taking place. Right? Or they, they were taking place. They're not taking place now, obviously, but so this right. is one re- this is one reason why the Israelis are, are hitting, are hitting Gaza so hard. They're just like, you know, we, they feel like I mean, betrayal is kind of a strong word and it's not that, but you know, they feel like, They've wasted the last 10 years being told, being with the understanding that Hamas is moderating itself. And then something like October 7th happens. Yeah. Right. And just blows them out of the water. Right. Yeah. And here we are with the current situation. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you view what's going on there now? Oh man. You know, it's uh, anything I say, I'll get yelled at. Right. It's quite funny. Um, it's not funny what's happening, but it's funny how I'm kind of, I kind of get stuck in the middle of it. I have people literally every day who called me up. I have, so this, this is a funny dynamic. Um, imagine social media, which I'm just really, truly growing to hate more and more every day, but in social media, I have friends on each side, right? And they might not know each other, but because I'm a mutual friend, they friended each other on Facebook, let's say, or Instagram or whatever. And so these are people who don't know each other. They come from opposite sides of the political, a political boundary. And suddenly they're seeing what the other people are posting during a period right now of horrible war when everyone is posting extreme content because they're not using their brains to think about what am I posting, right? Um, Anyone can be a peacenik when there's peace, right? But when there's actual war, you got to learn to control yourself. If you really want to believe in peace and you really want to believe in conflict resolution, then, you know, you've got to maintain some composure and people don't do it. So I have people, you know, I have Israelis calling them, did you see what this guy posted? This is unbelievable. Man, they're yelling at me about it because he's my friend. And then I have Palestinians calling me to say, did you see what that Israeli posted? <laughs> so I'm getting yelled at constantly. And I'm like, hey, uh, I don't, then none of those people are me. So why don't you just relax? Could you explain, talk to them directly? Could you explain what you mean a little bit more about that? Because, so you said, 
I mean, presumably then you you don't feel that the posting of extremely emotive social media content from either side of the the conversation is helpful because you said something like you need you I can't remember the exact phrasing, but you you effectively implied like you know it's not that responsible almost like if I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like can you explain what you mean by that? Because I think. Part of it is just the ability to share information, the way, you know, the, the ability to just click share. You watch a video, my God, I can't believe that share, right? There's no there's no diligence done to see whether what's true, what's not true. Um, and you're dealing with people that are that are consuming their own media sources, right? Here, I'm sitting in the US, I'm I'm reading Israeli stuff and I'm reading Arab media, and I'm but I'm also reading all this American stuff, whereas Palestinians are pretty much reading just Palestinian media and Israelis are pretty much just reading Israeli media. Right. They don't they're not used to having to go to an international media source to look at the news. They look at their own news, whatever their local local, uh, you know, paper is in or Internet, you know, national uh, Internet. Uh, so it happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, whatever, whatever they get their normal media from, which during a time of peace is probably quite adequate in a time of war. Suddenly it becomes a nationalist paper and yet nationalist news source. And that's still where they're getting their information from. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to come up with outrageous outrageous stuff. I'd like to come back to that point because I think this idea of like the where people are getting their opinions from is very interesting. But what what I want to slightly come back to is like, so I'm just thinking of like a lot of my extremely well-meaning liberal friends right now in the in the West, you know, who see what's going on and they're just like genocide, like they're you know they 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 are just like. 30,000 people dead, 30,000 people dead, kids, women. Yeah. They're seeing, they're seeing the, the girl being shot in the, you know, the, the famous thing that's been doing the rounds recently sure. and they're, and they're outraged and they're, and they're angry and yeah. they, and they, they think they're being helpful. You know, they think, yeah. they, they think they're post, they think by posting this, this is going to help change the situation. Yeah. So I, I think people here in your, those people here in, what you've just said might be a bit people can't seem to understand like why that's a problem yeah. you know like why is it a problem well it's not always a problem i mean sometimes there's you know sometimes it's true um but you got to stand back and say okay for, let's use the term genocide you got to figure out how is genocide defined and who gets to de- who gets to define it what is genocide in, in the international pol- political arena and is this is this it Say, oh, well, this this law says it's this, and this law says it's this, and this law says it's this. So I don't know. Gen- genocide is a very touchy term. Um, I also run an organization that has to work in these places. So like if I start running around screaming genocide, I'll never be allowed back to these places. We'll ne- everything will grind to a halt. The Israelis will just say, no, you called it genocide, right? Is it genocide? I think that I'd follow the International uh, Criminal Tribunal or the International Court ruling. You know, That's what I would go by because these are the experts. These are lawyers. I'm not a lawyer. Right? Do I do I think that the Israelis are committing genocide in Israel? I mean, in uh, Palestinian territories, I don't think it's intentional genocide. I think it's just recklessness. The Israeli, Israeli military is an incredibly powerful, incredibly precise organization, but they can they're also prone to to recklessness, um, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, now, of course, people will say, "Well, genocide doesn't have to be intentional." That's another part of the legal definition. Okay, so again. Let's have a lawyer decide what's going on. I don't throw that term around because I have to live and work in this environment. 
Uh, I don't post on social media personally anymore, this kind of content. Um, but I, I, imagine, do get, uh, I do get asked all the time to share yeah, stuff. I, I, I imagine you've been share given... This, share I, this, share this. I, and I imagine the fact that you're basically controlling the Gaza Surf Club social channels and you haven't used that word is, has been extremely contentious for a lot of people, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has, but it's not the, the, the goal, the whole point of our, of the Gaza circle is to support the surfers and to support yeah. their community. And I'm delving into politics and it, everyone, the service can do that on their own pages. That's fine. Yeah. I'm just trying to follow the project and follow the participants. And that's what we're trying to to document. I'm not sharing information that comes from other people because I have no way of vetting it. Social media stuff, there's no way to vet what you're getting, what you're seeing. I saw a video today that was very clearly AI. It's been shared 50,000 times or something. Yeah. It's an AI generated story. So, um, well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that point about the kind of perpetuation of, um, of positions that this, that this yeah. leads to, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's such an interesting it's just it's just it's just bewildering really isn't it like to know how to respond and to and to know like because I, I i'm quite similar to you really because what you've just explained there is you know when you especially with your explanation of like why you're reluctant to use the word genocide is because you <laughs> what you're basically saying is well it's nuanced you know I, I i work i work in this area like i need to work with people like my my bigger goals mean that I'm prepared to concede that so I can achieve my bigger goals. Let's just put it like that. But there doesn't seem to be much room for nuance in this in this whole topic. Well, that's the problem. And that's part of the problem with social media. There is no nuance. Nuance takes time. To understand nuance takes time. And social media does not allow for time. It's constant flow of information that has not been vetted coming out. And you know what? When you're dealing with footage coming out of a place like Gaza, most of it doesn't need to be vetted. You're seeing what you're seeing. Most of it is not AI generated. I'm in no way implying that it is. However, when you take that and then you then go then you go to the next step, right? And you say this means X, Y, and Z. Well, no, now you're now you're taking it now you're taking it far, right? Um, and the lack of nuance is something that is I've never seen with such brutality as I'm seeing now, right? Um, people who Part of it is social media is pressuring people into taking an aside. And it's not just taking a side, it's taking the only side. There are only two sides and there's no middle. And there's no nuance to either side, right? So if you support Palestinian resistance and you support Palestinian national statehood, then you have to be okay with Hamas and what they did, which is nonsense. What happened on October 7th. No one in the world would justify that as legitimate resistance. Right. You can be you can be involved in resistance and you can be in any country and you can be in a resistance group. But the whole the whole point of resistance is that you're never going to be strong enough as a resistance group to defeat the military that you're fighting against. What you're relying on is that your your acts of resistance will gather enough international support that you'd be able to use to switch over to the political side to gain your national objectives. And when you're kidnapping and massacring civilians on a, such a large scale, no one in the international community is, is saying, oh, resistance, we should, we should provide more support. We should you know, get involved here. No, it doesn't work, right? And on exactly the same way that when you say we're fighting terrorists and we are saving the world from these terrible, horrible terrorists, but we're also killing women and children on a massive scale, right? That's also not okay, right? Again, it's these two extremes and people who are involved in the conflict, either as people who live there or people who have family there or people who are ethnically related, you know, 
care about that. People feel like they have to take these extreme sides. You don't have to take it. You can take a side. There's nothing wrong with taking a side, but understand that within that side, there's a left and right to it. There's a, there's a, a, there's a spectrum and you have to find what's smart and you have to find what's logical. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just keep thinking like, would social media have helped the Northern Ireland peace process? I don't think it would no, have done. No, it doesn't help. It's not, <laughs> really? it's not helping. It's not helping. And, and you said a couple of, in, so when we talked on the phone last week and you've also said in this conversation, you said something really interesting. You said something that kind of took me aback on the phone, actually. You said, I wouldn't really bother speaking to people. Again, I'm putting words in your mouth, paraphrasing. I hope you don't mind. Um, and you said earlier, you said something like, you know, the problem is that people on the ground are just repeating their government's talking points, you know? And I, yeah. so I, I, we've got a vote today. You might be aware of in the UK. So there's a, there's a parliamentary vote on, um, like where, like whether to call for a ceasefire, you know, as a, as a parliamentary um, kind of decree. I'm, I'm phrasing that badly, but that's happening today, like right now in the UK. And there was a phone in that I listened to this morning um, for, for my sins on one of the big populist uh, radio shows. And it was basically very quickly devolved into an argument about numbers. So there was like, there was Israeli people on there saying 30,000 people dead's a lie um you you know and then there was people pro-palestine saying like there's thirty thousand people dead there's women and children dead you know and both sides just outright refuting each other and i was just listening to this and i was just a bit like what can you do with that like what like what what can you is it so is that what you mean when you say like that that people are basically repeating talking points that are coming from perhaps yeah. quite dubious places as it yeah, were. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and it's people on both sides. Um, again, in this situation, I'm te- I put a little more pressure on my Israeli friends than I do on my Palestinian friends because they live in a society with freedom of press and a democracy and a lot more access to information um, and a lot more reliable news sources than the Palestinians have, frankly. Um, so I do put a little bit more pressure, on, pressure on them to get out there and to like open their eyes and, and, read some different sources and stuff. Uh, a friend of mine the other day brought up exactly the numbers thing. You know, it's a lie. It's a, it's a lie. The number of 30,000, it's a lie. And I said, and I said, well, do this, go look at the IDF and see how many bombs they've dropped because this is public. A lot of this is publicized, right? So if they've dropped 30,000 bombs, do you think that 30,000 people being killed is an outrageous number? Right. Second, if the, Netanyahu, for example, is out there saying, we can't trust these numbers because they come from Hamas. Now, Hamas controls Gaza, but it's in the same way that the U.S. government controls the U.S. government, right? It's, it, it means they, they, they employ the trash men. They employ the street sweepers. They, they control the entire government, including all the municipal government, right? But that doesn't mean everyone in that chain of command is from Hamas, right? So the hospitals and things that are counting the numbers of casualties are municipal institutions that have been there forever. They're not like Hamas terrorist groups counting bodies, right? So should we take it with a grain of salt, the Hamas numbers? Sure, I'll, I'll buy that. But when the IDF, for example, the IDF spokesman goes on and says, um, based on anticipated casualties from urban combat, which is usually at a, a, fac, a, a, fra, a, a factor of you know six to one or whatever the number is, the fact that we've had so few civilian casualties in Gaza means that we're leading the way in protecting civilians during urban combat. 
So let's say the, the IDF is using these numbers to justify their own behavior. So Netanyahu is saying that, oh, we can't trust the numbers, but everyone else in the Israeli government seems to be fine with this number because they seem to think it's quite accurate, right? So stop listening to the talking heads and go to your actual government and see how they're treating the numbers. That Just use that you know, for that example, but uh, the number of casualties. Look around. Who's, talk, who's accepting this, these numbers, um, if you think that that's a lie, right? What, what I find is that people who would consider themselves left of center and still consider themselves left of center, when they're pushed into the corner, will, will spout out all the talking points that come from the right-wing government. They'll, they'll, they'll go right through them and say, none of this matches what you have been acting the last 10 years of your life. You're just, you're pushing you're talking, about on, the, you're talking about on the Israeli side. I'm talking about the Israeli side. It, it works on yeah. both sides. It's effective yeah. on both sides. Um, but my, most of my experience with it in this context has been from the Israeli side. My, yeah. you know, because um, part of it, I really do believe is, uh, is guilt. I mean, they, they see what's happening in Gaza. They don't necessarily believe at all, but I keep getting, it, people keep getting angry about, uh, the numbers. So, well, you shouldn't be directing your anger about the numbers of, they're talking about numbers of Palestinians being killed. Like they're angry about it. Israelis are angry about it. So, well, don't get angry at Palestinians about that. That That's, that's, you need to be talking to your own government if that's what you're concerned about, right? It's like, oh, well, uh, Hamas uses people as human shields. So it's all their fault. And, and that's absolutely true about human shields. Um, Hamas is, you know, embedded absolutely in the civilian population centers, in the schools, in the hospitals, all that. And that was true when, that was true 10 years ago when we, when I was working there the most, when I was going there the most frequently. Hamas was building a huge base underneath Shifa hospital. Everyone knew it. Everyone in town knew it, that they build bases under the hospitals. So that's all true. But when you understand um, the context of how the war works, you can say, yes, Hamas is using civilian targets as human shields, Right. And the Israelis say, well, that's why all these people died. And he said, well, no, actually all the people died because even though you know they're using this human steel shield, you still bombed it. That's kind of where the problem comes in. Yes, it's a problem that Hamas uses it, uses uh, civilian locations for human shields, but the bigger problem is that you still bomb it even though you know that that's what's happening. You see what I mean? Like people aren't taking it the, the next logical step further. Well, there's not a lot of logic in this situation. Is there? No, there, well, there, well, there, is, there is. There, there isn't. And you know what? I also have to, you know, make it perfectly clear that I'm not there. I'm not sitting in their shoes. No. Right. Yeah. Um, people in Tel Aviv, like friends of mine in Tel Aviv, who are having a tough time, you know, they're get, they're still getting rockets coming out of Gaza. They spent the last four months in the bomb shelter of their apartment building. You know, it doesn't get enough attention in the media in the West, but you know, it's been nonstop attack, nonstop rockets landing in Tel Aviv. The fact that the Israelis have developed a system which can shoot down most of the rockets and eliminate most of the threat means that the world isn't paying attention to it. Right? And do you yeah. think do you think the fact that it's been such a obviously catastrophic security failure for the Israelis has something to do with the response? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think they're trying to cover up for the huge mistake that they made. I mean, this was I was looking at this on on day one on October 7th, October 8th. There was, there was footage of the footage that was coming out from Palestinian fighters was here's one tank burning on the border fence. But we know that they, that we know how many spots the fence was breached at, but there's only one tank burning, which means there was only one tank patrolling the entire border of Gaza. The IDF figures that came out for deaths in the area around Gaza for military deaths uh, at the base there, kind of the main base and the area around it was like 44 ca casualties. But everyone was killed. So that means there were 44 Israeli soldiers 
guarding all of Gaza. I mean, it's a massive security failure, right? Massive, massive security failure. And I think, so part of it is that, part of the response is the army trying to make up for, you know, getting shit on its face or however, however you want you want to phrase it. And what is the situation on the ground in Gaza then? Like, are you, you're obviously in touch with people that from, from Gaza Surf Club, for example. So like, can you, can you, can you kind of paint a picture there? Yeah. One of the things that I've been trying to do, there's not a whole lot that we can do right now. Right. I mean, people can lobby their governments for a ceasefire and they can, uh, you know, get involved politically, but in terms of how, how can I help people there on the ground? Obviously quite limited. Um, what I've been trying to do is just try to help friends in Gaza get information about where they can go because the Israelis are quite effective at dropping leaflets and things and saying, move, move, get out of this area. But then there's all these local media sources, including Hamas that are telling people it's a trap. Don't move. Don't go there. Right. And it only takes one incident to suddenly stop progress. So the Israelis say move south. So someone's people start to move south and something is bombed, like a, a, a car heading south is bombed or something. And all of a sudden you've got a couple hundred thousand people that hear that and they're not going to move south. So I've been trying to help people kind of pick through the information and figure out where is it safe to go? How do I get there? When do I leave? Um, some of my friends who have like dual citizenship trying to help them get out of Gaza because they have a way, if you have a way to get out, get out, you know? Um, these are wealthier people, you know, upper middle class and upper class Palestinians who have a way to get out of Gaza. For the most part, the surfers are all in the south of Gaza. Everyone that I know of is in the south of Gaza and they're so all kind of living, it, living in it, tents. Is this Rafa that we're hearing about a lot? Though? Yeah, they're in Rafa now. Yeah, everyone is in Rafa. Um, now, that's just everyone that I know. There are people that never left the north, right? People were, say, people were saying, um, I was telling people, go south, right? Um, and they're saying, well, they're still bombing. They're bombing in the south too, so why should I leave the north? I said, well, like 80% of the bombing is happening in the north though, so you're still better off going south. It was, it, It's tough. It's tough to try to explain, you know, when they're hearing, I'm just another voice that they're hearing, you know, telling them where to go. So, but everyone that I've been in touch with recently is in, is in Rafa now. Um, the Israelis claim to be putting together an evacuation plan based on U.S. pressure to move Palestinians back to the north so they can have an offensive in Rafa. But the fact that it's taken like two weeks or something or 10 days and there still isn't a plan out makes me suspicious that they're they're not planning on trying to evacuate those people out. The Egyptians are also doing a lot of work on the Egyptian side of the border, clearing out some no man's land. And the Palestinians are really afraid that there will be some type of a, some type of an incident, whether intended or false flag or something that will make people flee across the Egyptian border. I mean, it's a, it's a serious border, right? It's more fences and stuff, but if you've got an, if you've got, you know, 800,000 people who want to get out, they'll get out. Right. Yeah. And the Palestinian fear, of course, is that then the Israelis will close the border and won't let them back in. Yeah, right. Okay. Israel, Israel, that would be a huge political mistake for Israel. But if the Israelis could make it look like an accident, you know, like, you know, we didn't make them leave. They just ran because they were scared. Then they think that they would take a little bit of the pressure off. I don't think the international community would buy it, but I think there are people in the Israeli government that are thinking that are thinking that way, unfortunately. If we make so, if we just create enough pressure, the Palestinians will run into Egypt on their own. So you you do feel that this is a a response by Israel to what happened in October, rather than some furtherance of this plan to basically expel this people from this land. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I don't think this is part of a, some kind of a bigger plan. 
Um, I think this is just purely in, in response to October 7th. That's not to say that there aren't people in the Israeli in the Israeli government and the Israeli right that wouldn't that would have a yeah. problem with, seek, with that. Seek right? to make capital out of this. No, there's certainly there's certainly people that want to do that. But you know, Israel has the example of Lebanon to look at, whereas they have an active Palestinian resistance. They fought multiple wars in Lebanon, all against Palestinians in exile in Lebanon, Palestinian refugees and groups like Hezbollah. Israel doesn't fight against the Lebanese government. They fight against Hezbollah. But um, I think that they is, the Israeli government must have an understanding that if they push the Palestinians into the Sinai, the same thing can happen in Sinai that's happened in Lebanon. You can have yeah. this massive uh, – Hezbollah is a massive military security force, which is 100 times more powerful than Hamas in terms of their assets and their personnel and the equipment and everything that they have. I mean, they're a, like a truly, truly, uh, truly significant military force. Yeah. Um, so, I, I said earlier I wasn't going to ask you to speculate about the Hamas motives, but I, I actually might, since as as you have such an informed position. Yeah. Um, because again, like a, a common trope that you hear is like, this was all part of the plan. Like Hamas knew that Israel would react like this. And, you know, they'd basically try to ignite a wider conflict in the region. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I so think you that's do true. Think, you, um, do, you do think that was basically at the heart of this. Yeah. I, but, but I also think that, um, and this is just kind of based on my understanding of, of military strategy and border security and kind of the, you know, the nuance of military stuff and um, defense policy and everything. I do think that what happened on October 7th was that the Hamas plan was a hundred times more successful than they expected it to be. And that I think it went completely overboard and that, the Israeli response took so long that a huge population, a huge number of civilians also got involved, right? The Israelis are talking about three to 5,000 Hamas fighters crossed over into Israel. But the initial numbers coming out were like 1,200 Hamas fighters crossed over into Israel. And if you look at a lot of the footage, there's people who are loading hostages onto motorcycles and stuff, and they're just plainclothes people. The Hamas guys were, you know, decked out, head to toe, military gear, grenades, uh, bulletproof vests, you know, rifles, everything. And you see in a lot of footage, you just see regular old civilians milling around these places, kidnapping people. And we know from the Israeli hostage situation that a lot of Israeli hostages are just held by families. They're not in the tunnels. They're not in specially built complexes meant, meant to house prisoners. They're like literally kept in someone's attic or right. they're kept in, they're kept in like a second locked in a bedroom of a, someone's house. I think what's happening is these are people that were kidnapped by individuals who didn't necessarily have an affiliation with Hamas or anything like that. The Israeli intelligence assessment was that there were people from, there were Palestinians from every single um, Palestinian militant group, regardless of political affiliation that were involved. So that includes Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which is a group that's affiliated with Fatah, Hamas's enemy. Um, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, which is um, a socialist group. It's kind of like a communist-based revolutionary group, which was more prominent in the 70s. I think what, 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 what's happened, though, is that they've identified all these civilians, and then they've identified their political affiliation. I don't necessarily think that this was some grand project where Hamas invited all of their, en- all of their rivals in Gaza to participate in this operation. But you, now, do, but you do feel like it was a an attempt to it yeah like create a wider conflict essentially yeah yeah i and i and i think that um 
people say, well, no one's that delusional to think that it's only going to lead to like this huge war. But based on my experience with dealing with Hamas officials in Gaza, delusional is is par for the course. I mean, right. really a lack of understanding, a lack of education about what motivates Israel, what motivates the West, why the West and Europe support Israel. Um, just so little understanding of what Israel is and what it means to the can, West. I, I, can I ask you to explain that? Because I, yeah. I, I would say that a lot of people in the West don't understand that either. Yeah. Let, let, let me mention the, the October assignment of the text one more time, because I, I do want to make it clear that I think their success was, you know, multiplied like tenfold because of the lack of a, effective Israeli defense combined with the fact that there happened to be a music festival going on down there. Uh, but none of that releases Hamas from any kind of responsibility, right? This is their operation. They did this. Every single thing that happened is their responsibility and it's, and it's on their hands, right? I use the same example for September 11th in the United States, right? 9-11 attacks. The hijackers hijacked four planes and killed 3,500 people. But from a tactical perspective, you have, they were probably assuming that they would try to hijack four planes and they'd get one or two maybe, Right. And they'd crash them in the World Trade Center, but they had no idea of knowing that the World Trade Centers would collapse from the from the from the plane. Right. So their initial intention was probably to kill five or six or seven hundred people. The fact that the towers collapsed and led to the death of thirty five hundred people was almost an accident. Right. And it's far as far as there that doesn't release them from any of the responsibility. No, I, I, for I what happens. I, right? I understand the point you make, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I just want to make that clear. I mean, yeah. you know, every, every horror that was, that was committed on October 7th was, is Hamas's fault directly. Yeah. No, it doesn't I, matter, I, doesn't I, matter I, whether I, their soldier did it or some civilian who showed up later. I, I, again, is you, 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 are demonstrating the nuance of this. Like yeah. there's, there's more going on than, than the, the broad strokes would would have you believe but i do i do want to obviously part of where i'm coming from with this is um yeah like somebody who sat in england like as an observer and also understanding like some of the conversations that are going on over here and i do i do feel like that the geopolitical reality of the british american israeli relationship as you've just alluded to is something that people don't really understand like they don't, they don't really understand like why well, there's this unquestioning commitment by the the UK and the states to Israel. So perhaps it'd be yeah. be helpful if you if you from your perspective could could perhaps explain that, expand upon that. Well, I mean, I can't I can't under explain all the all the nuances exactly of the entire history of it, but I could say that part of the fact that that Hamas specifically and Palestinian political and in, in, in a lot of, you know, most society in general doesn't really understand what Israel is and why it exists. Right. Um, and why the U S supports it and why, uh, why, you know, Europe supports it with restrictions, obviously more restrictions than the U S puts on it. Um, but th that all has to do with the fact that this conflict more than any conflict that I've encountered in the world is one where the people from both sides have the least understanding of this, the historical and social narrative of their enemies, right? So Palestinians, and I don't, and obviously I'm not talking about intellectuals. I'm not talking about upper middle-class Palestinians, upper-class Palestinians who have extensive educations and education. I'm talking about the general population, right? They don't understand the history of how Israel was created or why it was created or why it has the support of the international community. And Israelis don't understand 
how the Palestinian issue was created and why the Palestinians are a thing. <laughs> like, why are, they, why are they a people? When, when you what, say that, what seems when, to be the problem? When you, say the problem the, when you say sorry to in, interrupt, to apologize for that. But when you say how the Palestinian situation was created, are you talking about like the kind of Balfour Declaration, sort of like early twentieth century, yeah, like I mean, that, you, that 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 context? Is that what you mean by? I'm, that? I'm talking more about more about 1948. Okay, so um, so post war. Yeah. yeah, no, no, during the war, the war. Um, you know, there's 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 history before the war, but essentially the most important stuff that people need to have the most fundamental understanding of, especially as Israelis in Israel is that Israelis don't understand that how Israel was formed in 1948. They understood that we're we're taking the initiative. We're going to create a Jewish state and we, you know, we're coming out of the, out of the horrors of the Holocaust. We're going to build this state and they did it and they were successful. And now we have this state, but Israelis are not taught, are not told about the ethnic cleansing that took place. Yeah. Right. Which is, how Palestinians came into existence, right? Palestinians prior to that were called Arabs. They were Arabs who lived in Palestine because Palestine was part of a, a broader, a broader uh, Ottoman Empire, right? So yeah, so they're, they're Arabs. They happen to live in Palestine, and Israelis say Israelis like to say Palestinians don't exist. There's no such thing as Palestinians. They're just Arabs, like anyone else. What makes them different? But the the incredible thing to me, at least, is that Palestinians weren't created. They didn't create themselves. Israel created Palestinians because during the creation of Israel, the Israeli militias, the Irgun, the Haganah, they had organized ethnic cleansing campaigns where they went out and they pushed Arabs from villages within the borders of what they wanted to have as a Jewish state out, right? And pushed them into the West Bank, which is part of Jordan and into Egypt, into Gaza, which was part of Egypt. And 800,000 Palestinians were forced from their homes. Now, there's nuance there. Not all of the Palestinians who fled were forced out. Some of them left because there was a war and they were scared and they left. Some of them were literally forced out. The town that I grew up in in Israel, Herzliya, had a a little Arab village. It was originally an Arab village. Um, And the residents of that village, they fled to the West Bank on their own. They weren't attacked or anything. However, all the villages around them were attacked, which is why they left. So people are always going to argue, oh, but they left voluntarily. Oh, but they were, they were pushed out. You know, each side has their own thing. The reality is that the, the, the problem is that they weren't allowed back. That's where the legality issues come in. People flee war zones all the time. The problem is when those people are not allowed to return to their homes, that it becomes a legal issue that becomes an issue. So these 800,000 Palestinians who were pushed into the West Bank and Gaza were not allowed back. And so until fairly recently, Arabs in Israel were called Israeli Arabs, but those who had been pushed out were called Palestinians because they were separate. They were different from the Arabs that were in Israel because some Arabs managed to stay in Israel, like 20% of them managed to stay and they're Israeli citizens now. So Israelis will always like to talk about this is an invented thing. It's, yeah, but you, but you guys invented it, right? I don't mean to, I don't mean you guys. I mean your grandparents or something. Yeah. It's, it's something that I work, I'm trying to work with a lot. Part of this is, your standard, you know, trying to teach people about education, about uh, about history. I come from a country that was founded on ethnic cleansing, the United States, right? Founded on ethnic cleansing. And our ethnic cleansing was far more successful than Israel's ethnic cleansing. We got rid of almost everyone, right? Population of Native Americans in the United States, I think, is less than 2%. We're talking yeah. about tiny, well, that, tiny, uh, well, tiny. Well, that, that, that was a genocide. <laughs> yeah, it was genocide, yeah. And and you know what? It's, it's okay to talk about it. 
But people, people still people, people don't know, do they? I mean, like no, when I was when I was a kid growing up, we were taught that George Custer, this famous American military colonel, who was like this hero of the West, and with his yellow scarf blowing in the wind, and he and his men were massacred by uh, Native Americans, and he was like this hero. This is while I was a kid in the seventies, yeah. in the in the eighties. And then they realized, oh, actually, you know what? You know why the Indians killed him? Because he had been out there massacring villages of women and children while the men were away. Like he was a mass murderer. So now we understand who he is, right? Israel isn't at that place yet. They're not in the place where they understand the crimes that were committed during the founding of their country. And what I try to encourage my Israeli friends is it's okay to talk about it. You don't need to feel guilty for this. You did not do this. We all have this. This is something we all share. Like we well, all I mean, come I, from. I, I'm, I'm English. <laughs> Right. Yeah. We all come from cultures where this has happened. The, yeah. You don't, it's well, okay it's, to talk. It's okay to talk about it. You don't have to feel like you're being targeted by talking about it's it. It's incredible how the reluctance to talk about this. So it's such an interesting topic. Like in the UK, I mean, it's, it's a proper cultural battleground this right now. Like, yeah, you know, if sure. you, if you, if you discuss the fact that like the city of Bristol was essentially founded on slavery, you know, if you discuss the fact that where I'm from, Manchester used to be called Cottonopolis because they imported cotton from the South during the American Civil War, for yeah. example. You know, it it don't go down that well still. No, like no, because no. because the narrative is is very much like, no, we are, you know, we're Great Britain, we did the empire, like we sure. like so yeah, I'm not, and, and, and Israel is in that same position. They're just a, they're still just a few years behind us in terms of understanding their history, right? And again, I try to tell them it's okay to talk about this. You, if you want to solve the problem, you have to talk about the root of the problem. And it's okay that your country did these things. It's not okay that it that it happened, but you don't have to feel like personally responsible. You don't have to get defensive because of it. It's okay to talk about the sins of the past. What we're trying to figure out is how to fix those sins. Yeah. Right? On the Palestinian side, Palestinians need to understand the Palestinian narrative is more of. The Jews showed up and took it all. Like they just poof out of nowhere came. No, Jews have always lived in the Middle East. They've always lived in Palestine. They started immigrating in larger numbers in the 1800s, you know, 50 years before the founding of Israel. So there's a lot more nuance to the history there that they don't, that, that, that they don't appreciate. Yeah. And Palestinians, for example, don't understand how Israeli society works. They don't understand that there's Arabs that live in Israeli society. They don't understand that not everyone is a soldier. They don't have an understanding that there's a political left in Israel, which wants peace with the Palestinians. Mm. You know, that's a perfect example of talking about Hamas and how Hamas, Hamas is a perfect example of how they just don't seem to understand how things work. Right. The kibbutzes that Hamas attacked where they committed these insane atrocities, those kibbutz, those kibbutzim down there, are the absolute heart of the far left in Israel politically. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're socialist collectives, aren't they? They are. No, 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 not just because they're kibbutzim. Not, yeah, that's a, kibbutzes are, far, are socialist collectives, true. But those specific ones, like those four kibbutzes down there, those ones, they are the heart of the left wing in Israel. Sure. I don't know what the equivalent is in, in the UK. You know, in the, in the U.S., it would be like the Democratic heart of America is like the Massachusetts, because that's where all the Kennedys came from. And it's this kind of I, I, holy I site. I understand you know? exactly what you're saying. So like, it, so, yeah, so there's, a, there's an added layer of horrible irony to that, isn't yeah. there? Because yeah, Hamas went in. Yeah, Hamas attacked the people that they're the most supportive. Exactly. Of the the Palestinian cause in Israel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, want, I do want to ask you about the U.S. and, and, and British support for Israel because you said you said that you don't understand. You, you think that, for example, the, the the 
it's not widely understood, you know, amongst Palestinians, like why there's such staunch support. Well, like why, you know, why the Americans back Israel to such a degree? Yeah. Like, why, why do you think that is? I know I'm asking um, you for like geopolitics 101 here. I'm sorry. Like, I yeah, no, that's okay. Things. No, but I mean, the, the, the Americans support Israel because of the evangelical population in the United States. Uh, that's that's primarily the most recent. And Israelis love this. This is one of the best jokes that, that you can have with Israelis. Like, it's something to really have make, poke fun at, you know, that we poke fun at each other about it. It's really fun. When you walk through Jerusalem, they have all these t-shirt shops, like in the old city. There's beautiful old city, but there's these crappy t-shirt shops. And they have these t-shirts that say, don't worry, America, Israel is behind you, right? <laughs> and it has like an F-16 on it or something. It's really funny. But um, Israelis laugh at this because they they know that this that the you know it, the funding that comes to the United States, this, the unequivocal support the United States has for Israel is based on the it comes from the religious right and the power that they have in the U.S. Congress. Um, but Israelis also understand that the religious right in the United States are fundamentalist Christians who believe that. If enough, this is based on their interpretation of the Bible, that if enough Jews return to live in the Holy Land, it will lead to the second coming of Christ, right? And the end of days and everyone will be in heaven, except the Jews who will all, you know, go to hell because they're not Christians, right? So the Israelis know this and it, it's, it's a great joke because they're always just like, yes, we're all going to, yep, when, when, if you get enough of this here. Well, I know we'll end up in hell, but so be it. Just keep keep sending those checks, you know. Just keep signing those checks and sending them. It's such a great, you know. It's just a it's a it's just a really funny point because Israelis are absolutely aware of why the U.S. supports Israel yeah. unequivocally, and that's that's primarily the reason, right? Yeah. But you're seeing a big shift now, though. I mean, this war is. There's already, you know, the last ten years, there's been more of a shift. More people are understanding the Palestinian cause and what the Palestinian issue is. And this this war, though, is scary for Democrats right now. I mean, if yeah. if, if Joe Biden loses this election, it will be because of this war. I'm, I'm confident because it'll be from it'll be people who are just they're not going to vote again for Trump. They're just going to not going to show up at the polls. They're not going to yeah. turn out. I listened to this is very off topic, but I listened to a podcast with Anthony Scaramucci today. Fuck me. That was terrifying. <laughs> just because yeah. he espoused not his vision, but what he described as the Trump doctrine. Um, of isolationism and it was the fucking bleakest thing I've ever read in my life like I don't know how true it is but anyway uh, that's another podcast Um, so all right. well you've been incredibly generous with your time and like I say for asking what are a lot of very basic questions for me and a lot of like very complicated topics so huge thank you for that Matt Um, I want to end by asking you a couple couple of closing questions Um, do you think any conflict like this has ever been resolved by boiling it down to uh, a good versus evil narrative? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Um, the only way I could see that working is that if both sides agreed that the extremists on both sides were the bad guys and the supporters of peace on both sides were the good guys, but that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen like that. No, I know it's not an extremely leading question. Um, yeah. And how do you think this will get resolved? Uh, you mean the current war or the conflict in general? The current war, the current situation, the current focus of ceasefire now, like, you know, the wrath of, like the, the current conflict. Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I think the Israelis are going to run it out and fight as, you know, eradicate Hamas as best they can. They're going to have an international clandestine effort to eliminate Hamas leadership abroad. I mean, I think they're really not going to stop. They're going to go all out regardless of what anyone else wants. 
Um, um, the problem is going to be what they do with Gaza because they know they don't want Gaza. The Israelis don't want Gaza. They know the headache that comes with it. Um, but they are also afraid of what happens if they let go of Gaza because of what happened on October 7th, right? There, there was always rocket fire coming out of Gaza. Hamas has always attacked, harassed and attacked Israel. There's a tit for tat that's been understood and accepted by both sides, including by the public, you know? Um, but I think now we're going to have a situation where there's no one to take over Gaza right now, because if the Palestinian Authority moves to take over Gaza, they're just going to be seen as riding in on Israeli tanks to take over. So um, I think there's some ground there that needs to be stuck, you know, more closely looked at right now. No one's really doing it. I've, I've been working with a, a two different teams that are working on these questions right now. And for the most part, they're just talking about who's going to be in charge of Gaza, who's going to take over the security stuff, not how can we make sure that that security force is accepted. And I just think of like these, when the U S government came in and invaded Iraq and then tried to manage Iraqi security on its own, right? They disbanded the Iraqi army who thought that was a good idea. So now you've yeah. got tens of thousands of young men out of work with no money and the U S thought they could do it. So the same thing is in, in Gaza. I mean, you know, Hamas has its fighters, it's true believers. Um, but it also employed all the municipal workers and all of the, the policemen on the streets, you know, traffic cops, stuff like that. So there's going to have to be some integration of, the previous municipal government, at least, um, in order to help manage Gaza. Right now, law and order is falling apart. I mean, the people in the north are not getting food, and it's not because the trucks aren't driving north. It's because they're getting looted before they get to the north. Um, so the, the big challenge is going to be, where do you go from here? The Palestinian leadership is not up for taking it over. They're going to have to at some point, but they're not up for it. They don't have the leadership for it. They're, they're, they're so stale. And the Palestinians agree. The Palestinian population knows that their leadership is old and stale and has no good ideas. Um, so I think they're going to have to, I think um, there's going to have to be a substantial movement politically within the Palestinian Authority before they can figure out what really to do with Gaza. Because Israelis, Netanyahu is saying they're just going to keep it indefinitely. Well, no one's going to have the stomach for that. If, if Israeli soldiers are going to continue to be killed in Gaza, after the war is over, which they will, because there's going to still be active resistance. You know, the Israelis are discovering stockpiles of weapons every single day. They're not going to discover all of them. They're not going to discover all the tunnels. There's still going to be infrastructure left over that will be utilized to fight against an Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. Um, and the Israeli public won't tolerate it either. You know, they're going to have a short fuse for this. They're going to see what they've done to Gaza. They're going to be somewhat satisfied that they have eliminated 99% of the threat. And they're going to say, okay, let's figure out a, a different solution, not just reoccupation. So what's that? Um, what's next for you then? I'm working on that. I'm working on that, on that stuff. I'm trying right. to work on the humanitarian supply end of it because a lot of the proposals that I'm seeing coming out of track two teams are just security based. Right. How do we bring in a, how do we appoint Palestinian governors for different regions of Gaza to help control it and rebuild it? And my argument is that if you're not getting humanitarian supplies everywhere throughout the Gaza Strip, no one is going to support anyone that you put in power or anyone that's brought into power from the government in Ramallah. Is there, so an, appetite, is there an appetite to hear that argument right now? Um, there's a little bit of, of uh, there's not an appetite for it, but it's not because 
they don't think it's it's important. It's just that the track two people like to talk about politics, and I'm talking about logistics. Yeah. So you know, right. let the humanitarian let the humanitarian aid people worry about humanitarian aid, and we'll worry about the political situation. I'm saying no, no, the political situation is dependent completely on how well the humanitarian aid portion is done. Because if people are starving in Gaza, it doesn't matter who you put in there as a security force; they're gonna they're gonna fight back. Yeah. Right. They're gonna they're gonna they're going to be raiding convoys and it's going to be chaos, which it is right now. There's, you know, law and order. The only thing holding Gaza together right now is just people trying to be decent to one another, which they're not being, you know, across the board. There's most of the, most of the goods that you're seeing, the humanitarian goods that have been donated into Gaza, they're being sold to people. They're not being donated. Right. Everyone I'm talking to in Gaza is giving me the price list for all these goods that are coming in on trucks and are supposed to be free. They're supposed to be humanitarian deliveries. You know, there's a price point for every type of tent that's being delivered. The tents from Turkey cost one point. The tents from Egypt cost one point. The tents from Qatar cost one point. Yeah, they, they're all different price points depending on where they come from. And that has to be brought under control because you're not talking about uh, law and order. You're talking about a lack of law and order in a place with 2 million people. Yeah. No, it'll only get worse unless you get, unless you address the humanitarian needs first. Yeah. What a fucking bleak situation, man! I'm so I'm so grateful for you taking yeah. time to, to well, have this welcome. chat. You're um, you know, part part of part of part of making it less bleak is understanding possible futures, right? Understanding that that's the broader picture of the conflict. Understanding, okay, well, what could we do? What could be promoted? What what thoughts? What thought exercises can be done about how do you solve this? How do you fix this problem? Right. I've been a big proponent of a one-state solution, which is outrageous to everyone. Which to me means that I'm I'm on the right track, right? Both sides are a one-state one uh, solution. One-state solution, yeah. It, the Israelis are there's groups now in Israel that are starting talking starting to talk about it, the idea of a confederation. So, uh, uh, a, a peace agreement where you have te- you have two states that are have a, have a federation between them. So for example, there's one army that is in control of Israel and Palestine. This is the way the Israelis can say, we'll give the Palestinians a state, but we don't want them to have a military because we fear for our own safety. So they'll have their own government. We'll have our own government, but we'll cooperate on certain broader issues. Is there, we'll a prece- how, is there a precedent for that? I mean, a confederation, there, there are countries that are confederations that do that, where the states have a lot more a lot more pull than they would otherwise. In the United States, individual, yeah, yeah. individual states have a lot of pull. Sure. Right? So much, like a, much more than regions do in other countries. Yeah, right. So like a federal over like overarching authority, but almost like Yeah, but I, the I, federal I, is is less strong in a way, right? The federal is has specific jobs that it does. So this yeah. would be in, in the case of Israel would be the federal would be like the army would be a federal thing. Sure. Right? So the governments can well, operate they, on their own, but there's an overarching structure that kind of governs them. Right. And Switzerland yeah, that, is a confederation. You, 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 you hear two state solution, don't you? You don't hear one state solution. So, um, yeah. Do, do you think that's, yeah. Got two, state solution, two state solution exists because it is what was agreed to at Oslo. Right. But this is but another part of the conflict that the, especially the West doesn't understand is what two state solution means for Palestinians. For Palestinians, the number one issue in their entire existence when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the right of return. 800,000 people were forced out of Israel and their descendants want to go back, right? They know that they can't all just show up one day. It's not going to be that easy. But 
the right of return is the number one issue for Palestinian for Palestinians. And it's the issue that was left out of the Oslo process, right? The, the right of return in the Oslo process was deemed to be a less important issue that we can just deal with later. So Arafat essentially agreed to take the most important claim that the Palestinian people have and disregard it and just say, we'll settle for the West Bank and Gaza. Right. The Palestinians don't really, from my experience, Palestinians don't really care about having their own state. They don't, they don't need to have their own state. They don't, uh, they aspire for political, you know, national self-determination, but they don't necessarily say it doesn't have to be in the form of a state. Most, most Palestinians that I've had extensive conversations about that would say like, we'd be okay with just being Israeli citizens at this point. Like we know that we know we can't get rid of Israel. Like obviously in a dream world, Israel would poof, go away and they'd get their, they'd get a Palestinian state from the river to the sea, as they say. Right. But your average Palestinian understands that there's just no getting rid of Israel. But if they could become part of a democratic, successful state, they would become citizens of that state. Sure. There's a lot more movement on that than you read about in the press and that you hear about, especially from politicians. That I mean, the you idea just, of you don't hear about that. That's no, you don't hear about it. But it, yeah. it's especially in the West, way more in the West Bank than in Gaza. But yeah, I mean, this is a real thing. Now, October 7th really made that really damages that because that it puts that fear the Israelis have their fear for their mortal existence. Yeah. It brings it right back to the front and says, no, we really can't, we can't live with these people. Right? Yeah. 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 So it kind of leaves the whole issue hanging because Israelis were getting to the point. A lot of Israelis are, were getting to the point where they say, I think we could make this happen. Cause also economically it'd be a great thing for Israel. They had this massive workforce that they could sure. employ, you know, Israel imports a huge amount of labor. Tens of thousands of Palestinians already work in Israel. They come from Gaza. They come from the West Bank. They come in every day or they come in at the beginning of the week. They work in construction. They work in restaurants. It's it's more than since then, I think, the, in, since the 90s. The ramp up the huge amount of Palestinian labor, that's, especially from Gaza, that's been coming in prior to October 7th, including a lot of a lot of friends, a lot of people that I know. They're, a lot of their parents were working in Israel, making excellent money, really good money. And so Israelis are getting more and more used to seeing Palestinians, but October 7th has just shattered that. And, and the Israeli response has shattered it on the other side, right? Yeah. So this is just new new territory, basically, with everything yeah. that's happened. Yeah, yeah, I think so. We have to wait and see what's going to happen. Um, if the Israel, you know, the, the, the talk now is that uh, Netanyahu is saying, the US is pushing for a two-state solution. They're pushing for a return to this. Netanyahu is saying, um, that you're rewarding the Palestinians by by forcing a two state. Now you're saying, well, now you're rewarding them for the October seventh attacks. Yeah, I heard the argument my, made on the radio my, today. My but... argument, but, but my argument would be the opposite. My argument is that Hamas, the last thing that Hamas wants is a two state solution because they want the right of return. That's the number one thing they want, and the two state solution gets rid of the right of return. It gives Palestinians the West Bank and Gaza, but it doesn't allow for the right of return, which is the fundamental thing that Hamas calls for. So essentially, if you push a two state solution now, you're telling Hamas that whether your dream was to conquer Israel and get rid of all the Jews and have a Palestinian state or to eventually have Palestinians resettle in Israel, modern Israel, and live in peace and harmony, however you envisioned right of return, neither of those options are going to be viable now if you push for a two-state solution. But that might be it. And I think the Americans are also, you know, there's a lot of Americans in this administration who are saying, look, we're sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, but October 7th, basically shows that you can't live together right there in a way in a way you could see pushing a two-state solution as punishment 
not as a reward, right? Because it, it acknowledges that, yeah, the rate of return, your most important concern, it's we're done. You've lost it. You killed that option. So <laughs> forever and ever and ever and ever keep going. It's, it's, it's great. It's, it's fascinating. So there you go. That was me and Matt Olson of Gaza Surf Club. And I hope you found that as profoundly thought-provoking as I did. I'd be very interested indeed to know what people thought about that conversation because I imagine um, some people will have found it very polarizing. Some people will find it very insightful. Let's try and have a grown-up chat about this though, if possible. If you're going to leave me comments, if you do want to let me know or leave a comment, the best place you can do is over at my Substack page, www.lookingsideways.substack.com while there you can sign up as a free or paid subscriber sign up as a free or paid subscriber you get all my episodes my blogs my guest blogs the open threads the contests and the weekly 10 things landing in your inbox got many 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 thousands of people on that list now um and a great little community developing paid subscribers again there are many many people around the world supporting me with paid subscriptions Enable me to keep this thing running while also remaining free and ad-free. Um, you can also contact me over at Instagram at We Look Sideways, where I am also pretty active, probably a bit too active for my own mental health at times, but you know, whatevs. Um, and leave me a comment there. Although if you do leave me some snidey um, comment, I, I have started blocking people, which is great. I can't believe I've not done it earlier, to be honest. Um, I was a bit... Uh, an old friend of mine let's say who's went well off the deep end during covid um and has start got in the habit of leaving me quite sort of goading comments the other day i was just like i'm just gonna block him <laughs> brilliant so i did not heard from him since it was great right housekeeping corner now i did discuss this at the end of my recent episode with skin um because not that it fucking matters but i'd been getting a fair amount of flack for not posting about israel and gaza from some listeners followers and friends close friends as well stuff along the lines of well you post loads of stuff about wetsuits and water quality why aren't you posting about this so i did go into this a bit at the end of the episode that i conducted with skin phillips but i'll, I'll briefly touch on it again now my reasons basically were i don't feel like i've got anything insightful to add I don't feel like I need to have a view on every single issue in the world. For example, if somebody asked me to start posting about the Houthis or the situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo, I would not know where to start. And see, I'm not convinced posting on social media about anything actually has much impact whatsoever um, on issues such as this. I make that distinction because, for example, I have been posting a lot about water quality around Brighton. It's directed at the people who I surf and swim with in Brighton who I assume I've got a little bit of influence with. And having been to a pro two protests now, I went to one last summer when no one turned up and I went to one the other summer after I'd been ranting about it on Instagram and loads of people turned up. So for me, that was a bit of a, th there's quite a difference there, if you ask me. Um, thirdly, I'm not convinced posting on social media about something of this scale actually really has any impact whatsoever. I mean, I'm not sure the parliamentary vote, other than to wind everybody up, had any impact whatsoever on what's actually going on in Gaza. But I'm even more convinced that me posting about it on Instagram is going to have even less impact. I mean, I do understand that um, people ultimately post because it's like a cry of frustration and anger, and I completely get that. I really do. What I don't 
really understand is when those same people start demanding that other people do the same in quite aggressive ways and you know the implication being that if you don't do that you automatically support the cause that's being decried you know like if you don't post about this you support genocide i don't buy that at all and i don't think it's helpful um a listener at the time responded to the skin phillips housekeeping corner with this concerning the gent who tried to goad you into advising the internet of your take on the gaza situation you made the correct call displaying a brief opinion on a social media platform merely feeds the business needs of the provider makes some other participants angry for no benefit and does not influence the awful reality one iota i also went riding for the day with my pal gav from reactive reaction collective even around the three valleys the other day who had listened to the skin housekeeping corner and who said no offense but when it comes to people i want to hear about from about gaza you are pretty far down the list and of course no offense was taken and also not post on social media doesn't mean you're not active in other ways for example i've written to my mp about this i've signed and shared a petition that was sent to me about this and i shared it in my 10 things and i also decided to conduct this interview um but i still got people saying you know you should still be speaking out and all this so in the end I decided to do what I usually do in situations like this which is speak to somebody who knows more about it than I do and who is much more informed about it than I am which is what led me to Matt and and I'm very glad that I did conduct this conversation because as I said I found it very nuanced very interesting I didn't agree with some of what he said I did agree with some of what he said and the point is it it made me understand the situation a little bit more and it informed my opinion a little bit more, which is all I'm really trying to do with this stuff. So that's why I did it. That's why I'm very grateful to Matt for uh, taking the time to conduct this conversation with me. And that's why I'm sharing it with you. So like I say, let me know what you think on those aforementioned channels and um, let's keep it clean, eh? All right, that's it for this week. I just wanted to say a quick thanks to everybody who's been so welcoming to me over here during my little trip to the Three Valleys, Chris for the amazing hospitality, Quentin and Tom from Three Valleys, Esme at LDV for the uh, the Genopies the other day, Gav from Reaction for the Great Day on the Hill and everyone else. Big thank you for the warm welcome and support. All right, that's enough from me. I'll be back soon. Nice one. Mm-hmm.